Welcome to Deep Focus. My name is Quade Wooten, and I'm here with my co-host in podcasting, Nicholas Galligan. How you doing, man? Pretty good. Pretty good. I uh, Oh, I quit my job, uh, like I nice. said I was going to a few episodes ago. It's fantastic. Yeah. So, you know, progression outside of uh, outside of the movies that we're watching. Yeah, and um, me and Nick were just talking about how because of that we'll probably be bringing you a few extra episodes over these next few weeks. Um, we'll probably have Tenet coming out uh, maybe in around five or six days from when you're listening to this. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Uh, and also a heads up, we are doing a list episode today. Uh, we've done one of these before, but we're doing the best of t- the 2010s. So that's 2010 through 2019, and we're each bringing at 25 film lists that we'll go through from bottom to top. Yep. Um, and we're, we'll start at 25 in that one. We'll probably have to do it over two episodes and a little bit of an excessive note here compared to what we did in 2019. We're expecting to have more shared films. So if I mention a film at spot 19 that Nick has at spot three, I'll say I have it at 19, but we'll talk about it when we get to three. So, yeah. Awesome. Cool. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce your thought process behind the creation of your list, and then I'll go after you. So. Sure. I mean, uh, yeah, this list is absurd to make. Um, literally every single one, in my opinion, is, is a complete masterpiece. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. Uh, so basically, I, I guess the things that I kind of value um, and uh, elevate a film for me are like kind of efficiency and the message. Okay. Right. So like, uh, I, I like films that are very, um, concise and don't really feel like they have a lot of wasted time or, you know, excess space, but at the same time also, you know, don't feel rushed, you know, I don't feel like they under explained anything, but you know, just it's it, they, they get this like perfect balance. Um, I think that's extremely hard to achieve. Um, but I think a lot of these films did it and I, I think a couple of mine might be under contention, you know, but, uh, uh, I adamantly believe that this is, um, a good list. At least I, I expect that it will change in the future. Oh, yeah. uh, you know, none of these are going to be permanent for me, but, uh, yeah. I also haven't seen like all the films from this decade either. Exactly. I realized when making mine that. I hadn't seen that many 2010 films, you know? Right, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, like the 2000s probably would have been a little uh, more uh, watched for me. Yes, possibly. I mean, what was it? It was like 2013, 2014 when we really started uh, making films. Yeah, same for me. I think around 2012 was when I started really getting into it. Maybe like 2011. Yeah, and it kind of, you know, just being in productions and, you know, working on film and really trying to push your own stuff really like kind of limits how much time you can actually spend uh, working on film. And I think that like you get this, uh, I think you get this, I don't know, like compulsory need, maybe fueled by other like film people that you need to like sit down and watch X amount of movies every day. You know, yeah. and I, I know that you're like this too, but like neither of us really feel that way at all. And, you know, like I'd rather enjoy a movie to um, the greatest depth I can rather than jo- enjoying many, many movies um, back to back to back. Because I kind of feel like that also um, washes out of each, each experience, you know. 
Yeah, I think as long as you can tell what's happening when it's happening. So as long as you're not pushing it uh, artificially, you know, I I don't care either way. So right, if you're right. if you're the kind of like Tarantino ass person that can watch three movies a night and that works fine, you know. But otherwise, like I'm not going to hold it against the guy that's watching like two or three movies a week. That's uh, fair. That, I just yeah. I, I don't know. I've I've met so many people that like do that, and they you can tell you can tell they make films, but they hate it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> I want to make sure that I take yeah. enough time to absorb the film. One thing that I, I push myself on to this day is like not just watching the film, but watching it and then with the intention of spe- setting aside time to think about the film. Because mm-hmm. um, either way, if you're either watching a lot of movies each day or just a few movies a week and you don't really think about them, you know, that's a yeah. huge issue. Um, but anyways, I guess I'll give my little... Intro to my thought process behind my 25 film list. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, a big thing with me, if you've been listening to the podcast, they throw around romanticism, something I've been really getting into. And a huge uh, shared factor of a lot of these films is um, the the power of the emotion felt from them, uh, the emotion it evokes in me. Also, I find that a lot of these are uh, not all, but a lot of them are more character-focused movies, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, plot or concept. But there are some of those as well. And I would say a key thing to me, though, once again, there are exceptions, is the rewatchability. Most of these films on this list I've seen an absurd amount of times, especially as we get towards the top of the list. Um, but just like Nick, I do expect to uh, change this list over the years. Um and we are all probably going to talk about some honorable mentions when we're all done. Uh, 25 films is just not enough. And it actually gets harder the lower on the list they are. So <laughs> what's really hard is like choosing if 23 should be 21 or if 18 should be switched out with a film that you don't have on the list currently. You know, that's yeah. like the really hard part. Choosing your top five. That's actually like the easy part, frankly. Right, right. So actually, you know what? That that. I, th- I feel like that's when I felt most absurd making this list is uh, when I was deciding between like, you know, what should be 19 and what should be 20. Exactly. You know, and I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I think what I did to differentiate that was like uh, what had an insight that like kind of what you were saying with the depth of emotion thing. Mm-hmm. Um, just which one had an insight that affected me more? Yeah. You know. I mean, uh, fundamentally, we both agree it's it's coming down to taste here. I mean, like you said, oh, 100%. all the films that you considered were masterpieces. I started off with 65-ish films, <laughs> all of which yeah. I would have considered like 10 out of 10. So Right, right. Yeah, I think I think mine was about uh, 50 something. Nice. But. All right. Well, uh, why don't you kick it off with your number 25, man? Sure, sure. Uh, my number 25 is A Quiet Place. Well... You're going to have to wait on that one because I have a quiet place too, somewhere up uh, up Great, great. All right. So what's your 25? My 25 is Manchester by the Sea. Have you seen this? Mm. Uh, I watched this. I believe it's an Amazon original, so you can watch it on Amazon. And uh, it's a 2016 movie by Kenneth Lonergan. Okay. Lonergan. He... uh, he blew me away, frankly. Uh, this movie, I was not expecting. You, you watch the trailer and you're sort of expecting like a standard drama and you get this feeling that it's going to be uplifting. But one okay. of the beautiful things about this movie is, you know, you know, we've talked about life affirming movies. Right. And I sort of yeah. uh, deride them. Uh, this movie is not at all life affirming. <laughs> and yet it's more life affirming than most life affirming movies. Um, okay. 
if that if that makes sense. Like you, no, would, it definitely it makes just, sense. It's tragedy. This movie is like the aftermath of a tragedy, well, and I then think, ex- experiencing the tragedy as well. Yeah, uh, in flashback. I think the, the reason that most life affirming movies are like ridiculous, or you know, we, we kind of scoff at them a little bit, is because um, essentially they're affirming life via a lie, you know. And like the the rules of the world don't really um, match the rules of our world, or the, or they really only match you know the best of us. And um, it's also like a, a vague way of uh, choosing to affirm life. Like it's right. like oh, life is worth living. Like that's literally what right, the person right. says in their like little <laughs> voiceover monologue at the end. You know, right? But I, I think films that are able to really push the extremes of like what kind of you know, despair and horrible, um, horrible things there are in the world, uh, and show you those things and they're still able to affirm life. I think that's when, that's when you kind of get the true, uh, you know, what, what those films should be. Mm. Um, and we talked about this a little bit in our, uh, wind rises episode. Um, yeah, but that's another one that that's yeah. very similar to this movie, frankly. Okay. I would say actually it's sort of a similar, um, some similar ideas. I don't think the ultimate message is just the same. Right. Um, but yeah, man, this movie, it's, it's, it's beautiful to look at. It isn't the most beautiful movie, but shot very well. And the music and the music in the particular moments is so good. Yeah. Also, I would say the characters are good. The characters are real people. You're dealing essentially with these sort of Boston Irish types, you know, Massachusetts, not Boston. Yeah. But, uh, that they can't show any emotion. And yet they're put into these like incredible, uh, harrowing circumstances. All these guys, you know, like the opening, one yeah. of the opening scenes is his brother died. This is like the opening scene. So it's not a spoiler. Okay, okay. By the way, just for everyone, spoiler oh, yeah. warning for all films. <laughs> we forgot. Um, yeah, yeah, we did. Oh, well, but this yeah. is in the opening scene. So you can't be angry at me. Uh, <laughs> but his brother dies and he goes and rushes to the hospital before, you know, thinking he might still be alive. Uh, and then figures out he's dead and they don't, he doesn't cry at all. And there's just like, it's just masterful acting by Casey Affleck and a lot of the other people in this, in this movie. Okay. That's but cool. I cried, I cried twice in this movie and it takes a lot for a movie to make me cry. Frankly, I think I'm a little desensitized like most people my age. So, yeah. you know, it's actually, very good. I've always been kind of, I've had this like weird thing where um, it takes a lot for a movie to make me cry out of like sadness, but I, there's other ways that films make me cry, you know, and like, it's kind of weird. Uh, tears of joy. <laughs> yeah. I get like joy, um, respect tears too. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's weird. Like it's easier to make me cry. I just in think those of, respects uh, I just than, think of uh, the guy in parasite respect. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Cool. Well, um, but yeah, go ahead and, uh, give us our, your number 24, man. 24. Okay, so this one was actually a tough one for me because um, it was going to be one of two films by the same guy, uh, sure. Matthew Vaughn. And okay. I was between Kick-Ass and Kingsman. And oh, okay. I can really I, had to... Yeah. Can I up? guess? Go ahead. Kingsman. No. What? I actually went with Kick-Ass. What? Okay, hear me okay. out. Okay, justify this out. to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, first off, uh, I think Kick-Ass falls more into the comedy genre than the sure. drama genre. And I think I think while both have comedy and drama, I think I would call um, like 
Kingsman a dramatic uh, a drama with co- comedic elements, and I would call Kick Ass a comedy with dramatic elements. Right. Okay. Um, and Kick Ass is one of the reasons that I really love Kick Ass is because he kind of took this extremely violent comic, right? Yeah. And he brought it to the screen not to not to really like uh play off the. I mean, it, it obviously does play off the comic, but like the the real point behind this film, I thought, was to kind of just like really stick it to the superhero genre and like the superhero gimmicks. Yeah. Right. And really show us how like these heroes are really only heroic because they have so much power. They have they have the power to kind of like save people's life without taking life. Sure. Right. But when you put real people in those costumes, you know, it gets really violent and really fucked up really fast. Right. Mm -hmm. And um, I think there was a lot of backlash to this film because uh, I I think this violence came at a time when, uh, you know, people weren't used to seeing this yet. Sure. You know, this was was around that same season of like Inglorious Bastards and everything coming out. Yeah. Yeah. What was this? 2010. Yeah. So okay. I think this was before the raid too. Yeah. Um, and not even that many people saw that yet. So Yeah, yeah. Um but you know, this was before that huge surge of like extremely realistic violence, right? This yeah. was in like the height of the superhero genre where you yeah, had this like beginning. glorified uh and, and like this is something that I always talk about and um something that I bring to my own films too where um uh, you know, a lot of people talk about censoring violence and such, and I am a huge non-believer in that. Sure. Right. And like, I think the right way to treat violence in a film is to get the right reaction out of that violence. Right. Mm-hmm. And like, I think a lot of these superhero movies, they, they, uh, they glorify violence and they, they tell lies about violence, you know? Sure. And when you when you see real violence, it should make your stomach turn. Right. And I think this movie captures that so well. You know, every single time huh. there's violence, it's just presented in this extremely grotesque, realistic way. Right. You do sort of you do get into it, though, you know. Oh, for sure. Like the big sure. moments and everything. Yeah. And and there's this like uh, I can't remember where I read this, but um, someone called it uh, cotton candy violence. Okay. Um, like they this they called this movie like cotton candy violence, and I was like, you know, that kind of makes a lot of sense. And I really wish that this movie was a standalone because I think, um, I, I think the second one kind of pulls this one back a little bit. Um, but yeah. the first one by itself is just amazing, you know, and it goes through uh the life of this kid who gets like a quote unquote superpower. You know, I was. That, he can't feel would, pain, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. And it's just like um, a, uh, like you said, quote unquote, he just sort of gets his nerves or was it his spine that gets fucked or something? Yeah, he gets, he gets stabbed. Like the, he tries to be a hero and then gets like stabbed in the gut and then gets yeah. hit by a car, you know, like it's not. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I was thinking about this film recently when I watched, yeah. I think it's Amazon's new series, The Boys or something. Okay. Where they're doing sort of like, what if, uh the superheroes were like employed by companies and were complete and utter sociopaths. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and it's like Superman is like, you know, the arch villain. Right. I think, and I was just like, I was watching it and I was like, 
this is sort of kick-ass, but kick-ass is so much better than this. Oh, yeah. So well, just I mean, watch kick-ass. Kick-ass, <laughs> kick-ass did it in an awesome way, you know? Yeah. Um, but I, I felt like this was Matthew Vaughn really, like, settling into his style, too. And, mm-hmm. like, I think the reason that I cho- – the big reason that I chose kick-ass over Kingsman is because I felt like Kingsman um, not only was, like, a dramatic take – um, of the same type of violence and it like, but it fell really heavily into the style. And I felt like the discovery of this style allowed there to also be a, um, very well-made film behind it with a good insight, you sure. know, and like every single element from the violence to the cinematography to, um, you know, just the story in general, like kind of pushed this insight through, you know, where I, I think, I think Kingsman was more, um, one of the many responses to uh, James Bond getting dropped. Maybe, maybe. Um, I think the I would almost choose the reason I would probably if I was choosing between those two, and I, I would probably pick um, Kingsman. It's mm-hmm. just because I find the the message and the themes in Kingsman so much more interesting. They're just more aligned with the way I think and so on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, man, it's it's yeah. a great choice. Thanks. Uh, so, what's your twenty four? My 24 is interesting film. It came out fairly recently. I have only seen the unrated director's cut that was shown in a landmark theater in Denver. Mm-hmm. And apparently the, the uh, film company that was distributing it is getting sued by um, the MPAA because they didn't have proper authorization to do those screenings. Oh, so I don't, you'd have to search to make sure you find the same version as me, but it's Lars von Trier's the house that Jack built uh, from 2018. Hmm. And it's essentially following the life of a serial killer played by Matt Dillon uh, as he's tells different chapters of his life and different experiences in his life while having a discussion with the man that is uh, escorting him to hell after he's died. Hmm. Uh, And I find it really interesting. I find it, um, it's a, it's a really, you know, Lars von Trier. I know Lars von Trier is a controversial guy. Some people hate him. Some people really like him, but no one makes films in the same way. He has this way of making films intertwined with a voiceover and these extra sort of like multimedia aspects um, mm. that I find so enjoyable. Just the idea that you could be watching a scene and then all of a sudden you're sort of watching a uh, almost a PowerPoint presentation, but done very cinematically with voiceover with two characters arguing about, you know, this particular element of philosophy and this per- uh, certain aspect of life. I just mm. find that um, it's so much fun to watch. Uh, this film is very disturbing. I think it's probably the single most disturbing film I've watched. Um, I, well, we said spoilers, but like children get murdered in this film and there's some very horrifying scenes. Uh, And it's essentially dealing with, um, it's sort of Lars von Trier's uh, attempt to take on the sort of a psychology of a, of a mass murderer, in particular a dictator, but using the serial killer to represent it. And I like the the use of mythology and the how he uses the art of the past and the history of the past within the story to illustrate certain examples of certain things. And it's just um it's just fun. It's just nice to you know it's when you watch a movie it's sort of like how you feel when you start out liking cinema and you watch Tarantino, you know? Yeah. Where yeah. we've talked about this where he just breathes fresh life into like, "Oh, you can do this." Right. And that's <laughs> how I feel when I watch a Lars von Trier movie. It's like, "Oh, you can sure. make a movie this way." Um Lars von Trier has made one of my all-time favorite movies, which is Dogville. Um, 
And it, yeah, I just love it. Um, I would say, I would say it's not for the light of heart though. I mean, people can skip this mm-hmm. if they don't want to see children get murdered and people get mutilated. Um, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. That's cool. I'll have to watch that one. But, um, uh, before we move on to 23, um, yeah. I actually, I actually, um, thought of something that I wanted to talk about really quick. Go ahead. Um, I think it was in the, actually our first episode ever. Um, we were talking about how the proper way to actually, did we talk about this? The proper way to critique film being, yeah, film? we talked about like the Prometheus critique. And yeah. Yeah. So, um, I actually wanted to point out that I fully like when you, when you look at kick-ass, I fully believe it to be a criticism of the era oh, superhero movies, a romantic critique. Yeah. Right. Right. That's so it's like about. he kind of, because there's a lot of people, a lot of filmmakers in general that were kind of just like, uh, off put by the whole genre. Right. And I think, I think what kick-ass does is in every way exemplifies why they're off put <laughs> by the genre. Sure. You know? And, like that's what I loved about it is that it really did feel like a filmmaker critiquing, critiquing like a very specific sect of films, mainly like the Marvel movies, and using a film to do it. Yeah, right. And that that to me is so much better than you know you're 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 showing them what to do, um, rather than telling them what they shouldn't be doing. Yeah, you're using the correct medium. You're talking in the language. Right. And it, I think it fits perfectly too, as a comedy, you know, like I would say that if this wasn't a critique, it probably would have worked better as a, uh, a drama, mm-hmm. you know, but the fact that, um, it was just like laced with, uh, humor the entire time. And like this, even the, the ridiculous, like horrible violence was humorous the whole time, you cool. know? Um, but yeah, no, just, um, I love that. I love that. Um, I love when people, when you see directors kind of like, you know, have a criticism about another director or a type of film or something, and you see them make an entire movie. That's just like this criticism. Yeah. Um, That's cool. And I think that's the way that criticism should be, you know, not just us, um, you know, like, no, that's, using you know, Prometheus critiques. that's what matters the most. I mean, if you think about culture, one of the ways you could sort of conceptualize culture is, figures throughout time arguing with each other oh yeah in particular mediums yeah. and so you know this musician from this period of time is arguing with this composer of that period of time and they do that by creating their artwork in many ways um as opposed to this idea that uh, the history or one way of conceptualizing culture would be uh reading the writing of critics you know because right. that would not be well, and, at all. And, and I thought it was funny because like when I when this film came out, I watched it like seven times in theaters, you know, just oh, wow. because like just because <laughs> no I love that. <laughs> what? So no wonder you chose it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I watched King Kingsman like a good four times, too, mm-hmm. you know, but um, but Kick-Ass was just like I, I thought it was funny how all these critics were, you know, tr- um, tr- trashing on it because they were like, oh, another superhero movie when it's like this is obviously like that you should be on this film's side, you know, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, they don't, they don't even see that. It's like one side versus another. It's just, you know, they just see the superficial element, but anyways, sorry. Um, now actually that's a good, uh, good, uh, push into my 23rd film, which is actually uh, mission impossible fallout. Okay. Um, 
So like I was saying about uh, Kingsman, I think there were a lot of films that were um, essentially trying to pick up what. Oh, and uh, I'm sorry yeah. to interrupt you. No, go ahead. Would you mind saying the director in the year as well? Yeah, it was uh, it was so Kickass was 2010. Matthew Vaughn and Mission Impossible Fallout is 2018. Christopher Christopher McQuarrie. Sweet. Yeah. Thank you. Um, and so the thing about this film is, I think there were a lot of films that were putting, they're trying to pick up, kind of the audience that the James Bond series dropped with its new series. And like, not to say, you know, I know Quaid, you love those films. Um. <laughs> Not to say that um, those films are bad, but I don't think that they're good James Bond films, you know, and like what the James Bond audience had come to expect from the James Bond IP. Yeah, I mean, we um, need to do an entire episode about this. Uh, yeah, yeah. Real quick, my basic reply to that would be not to argue with you, but to sure. exemplify. I think this is one of the things that exemplifies the differences between us, where I think you focus more on things like the plot and the the gadgets you know where i'm like more about james bond you know so like well i no, you know it's james bond too because i think i think like what people came to expect was this like mysterious uh you know womanizer who's like extremely extremely lucky you know and yeah does these like kind of ridiculous feats right and that's what and i think the new movies uh, exemplify more as opposed to really well no I, th- I thought that like esque feeling I thought that like explaining his backstory like killed the mystery. Really, I think yeah. it added so much. I mean, anyways, him as a go ahead and go. Yes, <laughs> but um, but I think that this this film um, and actually Rogue Nation and this film together, right, mm-hmm. turned Mission Impossible into the thing that James Bond dropped. And I think that like Kingsman was trying to fulfill that role, um, but Mission Impossible was the one that nailed it, um, and. Uh, I'm a huge fan of the Mission Impossible series. Like I, the Mission Impossible Two is my first Mission Impossible film, and you know that one was crazy and stylistic, and I loved it as a kid. And then I, I warily came back to it, um, you know, once I was more studied and had watched a lot more film and was older, you know. And I was worried that you know I was going to have a wild, wild west experience with it, where I loved it as a kid, and then I just like couldn't get through five minutes as an okay. adult, you know. But uh, no, this was totally different. Like I Mission Impossible 2, I just, you know, fell in love with all over again. Um, this time kind of from understanding what was going on, you know, and like un- understanding that there was this extreme like um, over exaggerated style that was being used. But I think what uh, Christopher McQuarrie did was he took this uh, the Mission Impossible IP, ke- kept it Mission Impossible, you know, but created this structure around it that really, really felt like uh, the James Bond movies, you know, but just with 10 times more class. Um, <laughs> which I thought was um, really interesting, you know, uh, to take that route with the it, it totally makes sense, though, you know, like kind of leaning into the whole like, uh, you know, James Bond, like what we expect from James Bond is for him to you know, be riding a motorcycle, fly off of a cliff, you know, jump off the motorcycle mid jump, skydive into a helicopter and pull it up before it smashes into the ground. Right. And like that whole mindset of like a lot of these people are coming to watch James Bond for these kind of ridiculous moments, you know, and 
seeing what Tom Cruise had built with Mission Impossible and how he had kind of like really turned himself into the Jackie Chan of the Western world, hmm. you know, and then kind of melding those two, uh, uh, those two things together and kind of creating this very classic feeling spy, spy film, you know, with the feats of Tom Cruise and his stunts. Sure. You know, really kind of like sold that um, James Bond feeling. And in this one in particular, you know, you have you have the mastermind villain who has his, you know, crazy plot, um, which they didn't actually go too overboard with. Um, But then you have his henchman who like gets disfigured in a very uh, iconic way. Right. Mm. Um, You have, uh, you know, the Bond girl who's like a. um who was really interesting in this one because you actually, I think there were like two, right? There was the, 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 um, like terrorist girl and then his, uh, spy, like love interest who is kind of off and on with him, you know? Sure. Um, but what I think this brought to the world was just like taking that, um, this, you know, decade, decades long, um, tradition of James Bond, you know, and creating uh, kind of this new IP that fulfilled what um, I believe they had completely fumbled with the new films. Interesting. Uh, which, uh, yeah, no. Uh, especially, especially Casino, uh, Quantum, and uh, what's it called? What was the last one Spectre? Okay. You know, I I think they were just trying to do something that was out of reach. Um, I mean, I love Casino. And no, I, I, I think, think I think if all really three good. of those movies did not have 007 on it, I would love them. You know? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, but, this is yeah. an area of uh, <laughs> continued conflict for us. Um, yeah. Okay. Sweet. Um, should I go then? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so for my number 23, I chose a film uh, by Jeremy Solner who, if you remember, I think at the beginning of the decade sort of uh, came out of nowhere with an independent film he made uh, for, I think, a couple hundred thousand dollars called Lou Ruin. It was his revenge Mm, film. It was really good. But he made this sort of uh, thriller horror movie called Green Room. Um, It's one of these great, you know, one location movies. I love those kinds of movies. And it's essentially about a punk band who uh, gets... uh, suckered into performing for uh, a neo-Nazi hangout and uh, on their way out of the hangout, um, they witness a murder. And so the neo-Nazi leader who's played uh, by the way, by Patrick Stewart, um, you know, puts the kill order out on them. And so they're locked inside this room trying to protect themselves from uh, being murdered. Um, and one of the things I love about this movie is the violence, frankly. I know we've already talked about violence earlier with Kick-Ass. There's a similar thing mm-hmm. uh, with the violence in this movie, except for I would say it's a little bit more horrifying, this movie. Um, yeah. It just feels so brutal and so incredibly real. And there are some um, incredible gore moments in this. Uh, in particular, there's the moment where a guy's hand gets stuck between uh, the door and the other side of the room. And... Uh, right on the wrist, they start cutting it open with a knife, you know? Oh. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, also, this is, uh, I believe, uh, one of Anton Yelkin's, um, or is it Yelchin? Uh, last movies before he unfortunately died. Um, yeah. The, you know, the Russian guy from Star Trek. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I really love these kinds of movies. Um, I also, 
I like the stakes in this one. Um, if you've seen it, a lot of the main characters end up going, you know, dying one by one. And you end up with your main character and a side character uh, played by Mogan Potts um, that you didn't expect to end up with. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say, you know, I probably have around three movies on my list that you could classify as some form of horror. And I think out of all of them, uh, this is in, in contest for uh, truly being a horror movie, truly being a genre film. Um, this is the kind of genre film I would uh, imagine myself wanting to make, you know, like we talk about like say mission impossible, for example, that's a genre film. Yeah. I can never see myself making mission impossible. You know what I mean? Like, I think you could, and I think you'd be good at it. Uh, but if I were to like, Oh, I'm going to play around with the genre, this is the way I'd want to do it. Um, but it's highly rewatchable. I've seen it several times. It's always good. The acting's fantastic. But yeah, and oh, yeah, cool. it looks really good. This guy, Jeremy Solner, he knows how to do real good uh, digital cinematography. Uh, okay. Who's the cinematographer? His name's Sean Porter. Um, and he did other things like uh, Green Book recently, the Academy oh, yeah, picture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and he also did, Jeremy Solner also did, uh, I think it's called Free Fire, but it's another one location movie. Or Oh no, no, he didn't. But uh, he did uh, Hold the Dark, that recent movie on Netflix. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, I actually had uh Green Room recommended to me like three years ago and I, I didn't watch it, but you know, I it is yeah, on I my had, list. Uh, <laughs> I had the fortune of seeing it at the Denver Film Center and cool. uh with a packed audience and it really got the crowd going. There was lots of uh gasps and uh screams. So <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Yeah, definitely. All right, buddy, you wanna give uh twenty two? Sure. Um, so my 22 is, uh, 2019's 1997, sorry, 1917, okay. uh, by Sam Mendes. Good old Sam Mendes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, no, I think, uh, is, is this film on your list at all? It is not. It was in no. contest, but yeah. Um, happen. no, I just think, uh, it really did what Birdman was trying to do the one shot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Where like, I felt like, you know, with Birdman, it was so superficial, you know, they were like, it's one shot cause theater, you know, and that's it, you know, but like in 1917, it has this really distinct, um, you know, kind of like emotional reason for existing. And it, like, we actually talked about this in the, uh, the best this of 2019 episode, but it has this, effect where there's this kind of emotional twist at the end and having the whole film in one shot lets you really kind of like i kind of described it as this like rubber band that you're just stretching out through the whole movie and then when you get this twist it just snaps right back sure and i think having that one shot almost like simplifies it for your mind yeah you know so you're able to you're able to just recall so much easier um but uh yeah no no i loved this film um it's very good. Yeah. I mean, I won't, I won't talk about it too much more because uh, we already the, have, uh, but yeah, I mean, one thing I'd like to say about it is yeah, there is that, um, there is sort of a way that I think, uh, more movies have done in particular ones that are taking it seriously in our mm-hmm. like, action movies. Um, since I think maybe like all quiet on the Western front, um, or like, uh, what is it? Uh, something to do with glory, you know, um, Stanley Kubrick's film. Oh yeah. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I feel like this is up there as one of like the key personifications of 
that type of film um, mm. in, in terms of doing it really well. It's like up there with Saving Private Ryan in terms of sort of like the, you know, war, seeing the heroism in war, but still ultimately, you know, war as this very sad enterprise, you know, very depressing enterprise that play, you know, that wrecks havoc on man's mind and so on. Right. Yeah. But yeah, it's great. It's yeah. fantastic. Oh, um, one thing that I did want to mention about this that uh, um, I don't think we talked about before, um, but I, I, I recently was talking to someone about it, and I, I love this idea where uh, throughout this twist, uh, sorry, throughout this film, uh, before the twist, uh, you kind of see this, the main character is this, like, this uh, outcast of society or like a psychopath almost, you know? Okay. And... That I think that's why the ending is so emotional is because like what you're saying where um, like it really exemplifies how war wreaks havoc on the human mind. Right. Sure. Because like you look at this man and you're like, this is a psychopath. Right. This is like this is someone that doesn't know human connection. You know, um, really, you got that. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. I didn't get that feeling. Well, the, at the, I, I was very sympathetic to him. <laughs> well, at the very beginning, he he was even, like, you know, like everything was just cold, right? Like he didn't, he tried not to empathize with anyone. He like tried to distance himself from everyone. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I sympathize with him too much, you know, in a maybe, sense. Maybe yeah. it's similar to the Artemis Fowl thing we we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Know, um, just relating. <laughs> right, right. With people you shouldn't be relating with. <laughs> but. Um, I think I think at the end when you realize that he's like a father and he's he has a wife and daughter waiting for him at home. Yeah. You know, um, it really the, the twist is that like you're you're see, instead of like realizing that you're watching a psychopath, you're watching this like man, you know, this normal man who's been twisted by war. You know, and like you're really yeah, seeing absolutely. what he has to become to survive um, through all this. You know, and okay. I, yeah, no, I think that's why it was so powerful. But um, yeah, that's yeah, Sam Mendes, man. Yeah, he's definitely uh, done some great work this decade. Yeah, I totally agree. Um, all right, so I guess I'm next then. Mm -hmm. All right, so this one was hard for me. It's similar to your Matthew Vaughn thing, where you're sort of we're selecting between two movies of the same director. Okay, and uh, it's uh, Ruben Ostlin. Okay. I believe the Swedish director might be Norwegian who did uh, Force Majeure. And it was between Force Majeure and The Square for me. But ultimately, okay. I chose The Square. came out 2017. Oh, dang. The one that I didn't see. I know. The one you <laughs> didn't see. I love yeah. Force Majeure. And it would for sure, yeah. if I made like a top, even 35, I think it'd probably be on there. Okay. Um, but The Square is great. Uh, in many ways, it's great because it plays around with ideas I think about, even though I don't know. He's not necessarily a guy who's making – this is why he's challenging to me. This is why I like him. He's not – it's hard for him, for someone watching him to say that he has a definitive message. You know, He has a definitive insight. Me and you would argue that there is something there, uh, whether or not he wants there to be, right? But – yeah, well, I mean, it, he definitely has lots there of if you're exactly. Yeah, he has lots of themes and lots of questions, and um, I really like the space. It's really creative idea where you have essentially that your main character is the director, the you know head man in charge of the modern art museum in Stockholm. Okay, and 
uh, the very, I think the opening shot of the movie is them removing this old statue from probably the 1800s or early 1900s in mm-hmm. front of the museum. And they sort of, the guys working on it, they sort of fuck it up and the statue's head breaks off and it falls on the ground. And what they replace it with, rather than some other statue or some example of more classic artwork, you know, in the sense as definitive form and mm-hmm. you can grade its quality definitively, is they put a, a, a strip of white LED lights <laughs> uh, down on the ground and make a square with it. And then they put a little plaque explaining the square. And it's the same title of the the movie. And I think it's, it, I don't remember the exact wording, but it's something about, about you know, we are all within a square with one, one another and how we treat each other within the square, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the idea of the film is you see squares everywhere in the film. And the main guy, this creative director, sort of put through this sort of like hell week yeah. of inter- in different interactions. And that's another reason why I love this movie similar to force majeure, but even more so on this one is it's a collection of fantastic scenes, you know, as opposed to uh, an overarching plot. There is a plot, but mm-hmm. it's a collection of great character actors and fantastic scenes with those actors and uh, with our main character. Okay. And uh, he's gets in all sorts of hijinks and in interesting situations. Uh, in particular, the great humor in this film, in particular, there's a moment where um, an American uh uh, art jo- journalist uh, sleeps with him. They get mm-hmm. drunk and they sleep, and uh, he takes off his condom. Mm-hmm. And she, you know, they've been talking back and forth, and you could tell he sort of doesn't trust her, even though he slept with her. And like yeah. she sees he's holding his condom with, uh, you know, sorry to be graphic, but his expe- uh, his semen in it. And yeah. she's like, "Oh well, give that to me. I'll throw it away." And she like comes to take it, and he's like. He sort of pulls back with his condom and he's just like, <laughs> I don't want to give it to you. And she's like, what do you think I'm going to do with the condom? And he's like, like, it's only making him more nervous. And now he doesn't yeah. want to give it to her. You know, it's these great like little moments. Um, there's this moment where they have this exhibit during sort of like a, a donation dinner of this guy who uh, does uh, uh, performance art. And he acts like he's an ape and he has got these little additional like almost walking sticks but they help him in order to sort of do that more hunched back leaned over thing that they does yeah and he pushes it to the extreme to the point where he has everyone in the room extremely uncomfortable he's in particular picked on one guy so badly he ran out and assaulted him and he pushes it to the extreme everyone's silent they're all looking down they don't want to be looking at him he's just prowling through the room prowling through the room and then he grabs a woman and um pulls her by her hair and is in the process of beginning to assault her sexually. And then he gets tackled, you know, by uh, <laughs> the men, all the men decide to band together. Okay. Um, but yeah. that's what I'm talking about. It's like examining, it's like him deciding to put a camera in a room and in a really weird situation and watch how humans re- would react. Right, you know? right. But he has got his main character that's in most of the scenes. Um, and he's using the modern art situation and sort of parroting modern art, but also saying, Hey, there's some cool things about modern art and this would be sort of it as well. You know, like these things are happening in terms of uh, examining these questions. And isn't that cool, even though it's sort of ridiculous. Um, but I love this guy. I think this guy is definitely on my list of like the filmmakers I'm most excited for when they make a new film. It looks great. Uh, great actors. Um, but yeah, man, uh, you should definitely watch it. It's a lot of fun. I will. I will. Definitely. I, I liked Force Majeure. So, yeah. Yeah. It sounds actually pretty similar. Um, Force it Majeure, is similar. Yeah. He definitely has a definitive style, you know? Yeah, definitely. So, um, cool. So, 21. Go for it. So, mine was uh, Parasite uh, by Bong Joon Ho. Cool. Um, 2019 as well. I don't have that. I was in competition, but I didn't do it. Yeah. 
I think it's his highest for me. You know, before you go on, it, for me, I was deciding like, would I rather have Snowpiercer or Parasite? Mm. You yeah. know, and I think I probably would have chosen Snowpiercer just because for me, it's a personal favorite because uh, it yeah, deals yeah. with themes I like. Um, I, I think like for me, Snowpiercer, uh, I did love it, but it, I didn't, uh, it, it wasn't like one of my favorite movies of all time, you know, sure. and I, I felt like there was a lot of um, punches being pulled, whether that was only for the American version or not. Um, right. And this might change once I, uh, once I see the, uh, you know, non-Americanized version of Snowpiercer, but yeah. Um, if there, if there is one, I don't know, but, uh, no, I thought Parasite was, you know, I was, I was on the edge of my seat the entire film and it just, I, I think he settled into his style like very, very well in Okja. And then in this one, it was just, um, you know, he, he just nailed it, but yeah. Um, yeah, no, I, I just love the way that he thinks, you know, where like he actually, in my opinion, does something that um, in, in this film that you usually only see in really good science fiction or fantasy, you know, where what you're what you're watching has nothing to do with what he's trying to say, you know, and it's it's almost like everything, everything in the film is symbolic for something. Okay. Right. Um, and Snowpiercer was the same way. Um, I'd argue that Okja was similar. Um, but um, with science fiction, you're usually using uh, elements of the world where um, I, I sorry, I should say in science fiction, you know, you're using elements of the world to do that. And here he's also using elements of the world to do that. But it's, um, you know, it's a drama. It's takes place in our world. Um, but it doesn't again, I feel like he has this strange quality of being able to make films that, you know, even if it does exist in our world, doesn't really feel like it exists in our world. You know, where things become so absurd or ridiculous, you know, and almost have yeah. this cartoony comical effect. Yeah. You know, respect. Yeah. <laughs> you love, I love that line. That. <laughs> I love it so goddamn much. Yeah. Um, but seeing kind of this uh film about like class structure and morality play out in um, this way. And this is actually one that I haven't really figured out the insight for. It's hard. Um, yeah. And I'd have to watch it again. Cause I only saw it when it came out in theaters. Um, but I, I don't think it's on, is it on a streaming platform yet? I actually don't think no, so. No, I don't think so. Yeah. So I, I haven't bought it yet, but I will. Um, and I'll rewatch it. And, you know, I had talked with one of my friends about it extensively afterwards, but, um, we were also working, so we kind of had to drop it pretty soon to get back to work. So uh, we didn't have a lot of time to talk about it. But yeah, Bong Joon Ho is a guy that I want to cover in his entirety on this on this podcast. Yeah, for sure. I'm really excited to do both Parasite and Snowpiercer on this podcast. Definitely, and yeah, I, you know, I'll just kind of leave it there because I expect you know, we'll have a bit better of a um, take on it once we, you know, break it down and, and are ready yeah. to do an episode. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good pick. Yeah. What's yours? All right. So for 21, for me, I chose a film that people might not really remember that much, but is I've rewatched it so many times and it has some of the best buildups to climax um, 
in any film I've ever seen, which is Gavin O'Connor's 2011 film Warrior. Oh, I love that. Yeah, no, I, I totally forgot about that. But yeah, I love that film. It's so good. And it stars, of course, the great Joel Akerton and Tom Hardy mm. with, uh, what's his name, Nick Nolte as the sort of uh, recovering alcoholic father. Yeah. Um, I love Gavin O'Connor. He's sort of like a, a sleeper, a sleeper agent of directors, you know, underrated. I, I suppose that's the word. Sure. Um, he did Accountant recently and Jane Got a Gun. And he did a movie I'm excited to watch this year, uh, The Way Back with uh, Ben Affleck. But uh, this film is fantastic. I love films about family. Uh, Nick knows this about me. Family is one of my favorite <laughs> subjects. It's one of my favorite yeah. things to think about. And this is all about family and in particular about a family of warriors. That's why it's called Warrior. And it's about them entering into uh, a sort of a, a competition, a, an almost, uh, what is it, like, um, you know, a tiered competition for martial, uh, what is it called? Martial arts, um, UFC. MMA. Um, MMA. Thank you very much. And uh, competing for, I think, something like $10 million. Yeah. And they each have their own reasons. You know, Tom Hardy is, uh, he went AWOL from the army and he wants to make the money to give to his best buddy's wife. And his best buddy died uh, in the Middle East. He was a Marine. And Joel Egerton can't pay the bills. You know, he he's, it's the same story you hear, you know, in Breaking Bad, you know. Yeah. He's a science teacher and it doesn't pay enough. And they're going to lose their house and he's not going to lose his house. You know, he wants to make mm-hmm. sure his family is a place to live. But not only that, these brothers are estranged and the the father is not allowed uh, around the family of the guy that has the family. And the son that left him went to the army hates his father, even though he needs him to train him. So it's also about this family finding a way to heal. But right. I will say the fighting, even though the cinematography, Gavin O'Connor has this really, um, it speaks to it speaks to that you don't have to be amazing at visuals. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is what this film speaks to in part as well is you can literally just be like, you know what? I'm going to have like five guys standing around the ring and sort of just doing handheld and just sort of following the action, you know, right, vaguely right. center frame or on the, you know, the thirds and it'll be great. And I'll edit it together and it'll be great. And it is. And mm-hmm. you're so in it. The fight choreography is so good. And the thing is they each have two fights before they fight each other in the climax fight as well so in each of those fights are amazingly unique uh, particularly the science teacher his are so brutal and so scrappy and yeah. you just you're so excited when he finally fucking wins them you're just like oh man right and um tom hardy he's just brutal you know he just brutalizes these people right um but yeah the build up the climax mm-hmm. in terms of a, a catharsis a few films match the emotional cathar- catharsis this uh, film brings to the table and it does it several times in the film as well. So it's just like, it just blows my mind. You know, when I think about doing an emotional catharsis, this is like definitely like a textbook. Right. Right. Um, to try to figure that out. Um, but yeah, I, I'll, I'll leave it there, frankly. Um, let's see. Yeah. I'll leave it there. Cool. Yeah. No, I yeah. love that film. It's really good. But um, yeah. So my number 20 is uh 2016's uh la la land by damien chazelle oh yeah um i didn't know that was coming (laughs) (laughs) um yeah no it's uh i i thought this movie was amazing and i think that this that damien is one of the best uh rising star best young directors right now you know yeah 
I don't know how young sure. he actually is, but you know, early early career directors. <laughs> yeah, I would I could say he's probably late twenties, early thirties. Okay, cool. Yeah, he. Uh, um, I don't know. He he just did so well with this film, and like, I don't know. I I think I think like a lot of people think this movie is overrated, right? And yeah. I, th- I think a lot of people look at this as a musical and kind of just write it off because of that. But sure. Um, the, and, and like if, if it was 80% of this film, I would, I would probably agree, you know, but he just nailed the ending on this film, you know, and he, he always nails his endings. Right. But um, I would say that this maybe is his most, uh, um, or his saddest ending, I guess. Yeah, there's a tragic element. To yeah, it. I yeah. love tragic elements. Um, <laughs> but I love that they did this whole like musical number recapping their entire relationship as they kind of wished it could have been. Yeah, you know. Um, but you know, I, I think that this is a like having this story about how when you know. Like to to really just boil it down, you know, when you love something, you let it go, you know, um, and how they they kind of both had these dreams, and because they loved each other so much, they had to let the other pursue, um, pursue their dream, and because of it, they couldn't be together. Yeah, you know, and to have this kind of like moment at the end of kind of this mutual, um, I guess like, uh, love for each other, you know, in that they allowed each other to become what they wanted to be you know yeah it it was so sweet you know and so sad at the same time yeah you know and i it's i love that he was able to kind of pull off that kind of thing uh in a film i am not a fan of musicals and this was a really good movie and i really enjoyed watching it one thing i would point out is there's there's a good amount of musical in it but there's not too much yeah. and that's perfect. There's still cinema in the sense of scenes with characters right. acting with one another, you know? And right, I love right. it. So, um, yeah, no, I thought this movie was going to be really gimmicky the first time I like saw trailers for it. And I was like, well, they're going to, they're just going to, you know, phone it in with the old Hollywood, the old Hollywood nostalgia. Yeah. You know, it's always popular. Trying to pull off a dance in the rain, you know, part two. But no, I think I think they pulled off something like extremely unique, really played into the whole musical genre, you know, and used it to tell the story better. And I think having the whole film be a musical and having this whole kind of like reimagining at the end of this extravagant musical, you know, that plays inside of this moment that they're sharing together at the end. You know, and, you know, actually, yeah. before we before we go even further with that, I, I I love that ending because it's it's kind of this like it, it's really this shared uh, shared experience because it's it's this song that he wrote for her. Right. And sure. he sees her in the crowd and he decides to play it. And like it's really I, I think it's really getting at what that song means to them. OK, you know, and it's cool seeing music visualized in that way. Um, oh yeah, that's cool. Know. I haven't thought about that. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, no, I, I loved it. I didn't think I was going to, and I just absolutely adored this and it jumped all the way to the 20th spot on my top for the decade. That's cool. 
Yeah. I like how much uh, variation we have at the bottom of the list so far. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, all right. So should I go? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So my number 20 is a film I, I really like very much. It is James Gray's The Immigrant from the year 2013. Nice, nice. Uh, this Another film, one I haven't seen. Wait, are, yeah, are you six exactly. for six with films I haven't seen? Uh, I think so. Oh my yeah. god! <laughs> no, The Warrior. You saw The <laughs> oh, Warrior. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> almost, almost a perfect score. Yeah, <laughs> man, you gotta, you gotta get those watching numbers up. I know. Um, <laughs> it's okay. I provided you the perfect list to begin. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyways, yeah, so this film was set in the early 1920s during some of the immigration waves, you know, the famous Ellis Island uh, immigration waves. It follows uh, initially a pair of sisters, uh, Polish sisters, immigrating to America to come stay with uh, an aunt and uncle. Uh, uh, the main character is Marion Cotillard. If that's how you pronounce it, I know people have a tough time with that, and that would be me especially. Um and her sister gets sent back. She's sick and Ellis Island won't allow anyone that's sick. So she's by herself now and she goes to her aunt and uncles and she gets kicked out because there's a, a rumor which is illustrated. You believe it to be false. The audience believes it to be false. And, but it's, there's a rumor about them surviving on the boat by being prostitutes essentially on the way to America. Mm-hmm. And uh, so she gets kicked out of her, you know, aunts and uncles house in New York city. And so now she has to survive on her own in the big bad city in the 1920s. And she enters into this love triangle with Jeremy Renner and Joaquin Phoenix. Uh, Mm -hmm. Joaquin Phoenix is sort of um, a criminal of a type. He's sort of the, he runs a bar theater combo and Jeremy Renner is a magician. Not only that in this film, magic is sort of real. Like you never see it do anything truly spectacular, but there's these small little things where he does things. Jeremy Renner does things that can't, you know, be explained. I love and that. And I love that little touch. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they enter into a love triangle. I have a few things to say here, man. Where to, where to begin? Um, one thing I want to note on real fast is it has the great Darius Kanji as the DP. And he's doing his, what he's known for, which is his fantastic yellows. And mm-hmm. it's beautiful. It's truly beautiful. This is one of the most beautiful films of the decade, in my opinion, and especially the ending sequence with the boat on the water. It's so beautiful to look at. I just, what I would also say, go ahead. I, I just want you to know, uh, you really sold this film this this time. You're describing this to me. I just put I it onto my watch list and pulled it to the top. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Uh, um, Sorry, Anyways, sorry, sorry. Uh, no, no, you're <laughs> yeah. good. You're good. <laughs> Darius Kanji. But yeah, it's a beautiful, beautiful film. I really like James Gray. You know, we were talking about best of 2019. I put Ad Astra on there. He also has a film I really don't like, The Lost City of Z. So it's like this guy's like a wild card to me. Yeah. Um, but one thing I would say is I have a theory, which I think is true. Mm-hmm. And that is in the last couple of decades, I would say from about 2000 onward, but even a little bit before that, you can see some foreshadowing of this. Okay. I think the West for a lot of, frankly, societal and cultural reasons has lost touch with romance. And I don't mean romanticism as like a theory. Like romance as, as a genre. romance. Yeah. Yeah. And as, you know, actual romance in real life, I think that's probably one of the reasons, but also as a genre of, you know, novels or films or any t- kind of story. And so it's very rare anymore, in my opinion, to find a film that is truly a romantic film that truly fulfills that I wonder, side of. 
I wonder if that's person. because of the rise of rom-coms. I, it could be. I, you know, I have a theory. My, this is a, well, I guess it's part of the same theory uh, that I need to check a little bit more. So take it with a grain of salt. But my instinct, my intuition says the East has not lost this because I have been watching some yeah. Japanese and South Korean romance films. And they are so much better on average than what the the West offers up and puts the word romance on. Right. Um, and I think it's due to deeper reasons, more civilizational reasons, frankly, than artistic reasons. Maybe. Um, but this is one of those Western films that bucks the trend. And you get a real sense of romance in this, um, in this love triangle that she's trapped in. Uh, also, the acting. The acting is spectacular. We all like Joaquin Phoenix, Jeremy Renner. I've always really liked him since I saw him in The Hurt Locker. Uh, Marion Cotillard. Um, I, she's easily probably my top three actresses. I've loved her in everything I've seen her in. Uh, but in particular, uh, as a main character in this film, I find her astounding because the kind of character she's playing, you do not see often at all in mm. movies anymore in the West in the sense that she is passive. She's sort of experiencing the story. And even though she's not active, she's not, you know, initiating choices in a sense. Yeah. Uh, you're still rooting for her. And right. she's very vulnerable and things are sort of happening to her and she's almost a victim, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's cool. And it's really interesting to see that, um, that dynamic. Um, but yeah, I would just say it's one of the great, it's up there with like Joe Wright's Pride and Prejudice and a few other films in terms of uh, movies made in the recent decades, Western romances and actually achieving that genre. Nice. So yeah. Yeah. Just watch it. I will. <laughs> all right um so my number 19 we're on 19 right yeah okay you're gonna call me a hypocrite right now quaid oh my number 19 is skyfall oh shit (laughs) as i mentioned earlier i think i did we we attempted to do this a couple times and um we got about right to here we got about 19 i've been i've been like debating i've been really trying to debate (laughs) with myself what's better um well, we we're going to have to wait and uh, explain later. Yeah. Because I have Skyfall. Awesome. At, uh, we will. We will. We will wait. But yeah, 2000, 2012, Sam Mendes, we will get to it. Yeah. So you got two Mendes on there. That's good. I do. I think it, I might have three. I might have three. Is there another one? You Is did there? Spectre. No. I don't no, know. No, I think there's only two. Yeah. All right. Anyways, what was your 19? Okay, here I go again. Uh, <laughs> trying to breathe. Uh, I have the the master, the guy that's probably, I would probably think as of right now, he's sort of my, I don't really have a favorite filmmaker, but I want one. Okay. And as of right now, he's sort of my favorite filmmaker. And that is Paul Thomas Anderson's 2012 masterpiece, The Master. Okay. Um, so obviously stars Joaquin Phoenix and also... Uh, my favorite actor, I would say, Philip Seymour Hoffman. And I say he's my favorite actor, not because currently he's my favorite actor, but because out of the time that I've been interested in cinema, he's been mostly considered my favorite actor. <laughs> uh, I have so an average favorite actor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I have an autographed picture of Joaquin Phoenix, and I would say this is his last great role. Philip Seymour Hoffman. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, and uh, this is his last great role. And you know, when you watch the Hunger Games and other stuff, he's good in it. But this is really his last great, huge role. What year was this? Uh, this is 2012. Um, what year was? Oh, that was 2005. Okay, sorry. I'm, I was I was trying to figure out what year Capote was. 
Oh yeah. But, no, that's a great one too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. And uh, in particular, something about Philip, Philip Samuel Hoffman is he's a, he's a character actor, right? Which means he, he's mostly in his career played characters that aren't really among the main characters. Mm-hmm. But in this film, you know, he plays one of the leads with Joaquin Phoenix and he's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I love uh, one thing I, I probably didn't say early on. That's probably a, a commonality between uh, a lot of the films on my top 25 film list is a certain rawness to the acting and the storytelling, a certain savageness or primitiveness, sure. animalisticness. Um, and this film has that. I, I particularly think of the scene where they're getting drunk on that uh, cocktail of like pure liquor, like paint thinner almost. Yeah. That Joaquin Phoenix made while he's sort of doing his uh, Scientology interview on him. And they're talking about incest and all of that. And I love the raw emotion. I love the scene where they get thrown in jail together and Joaquin Phoenix is just like flipping out and banging his head on everything. And, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman is like, who likes you except for me? Who likes you except for me? I like the, uh, the reaction, the very yeah, human yeah. reaction to getting interrogated uh, by the Philip Seymour Hoffman getting interrogated by the unbeliever right. at the party. And he, he blows it you know, <laughs> at the very end with like pig fuck, yeah. uh, which is, I just love it. And, you know, you know, we talk about this with uh, um, here. One second. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead. We talk about this with Boogie Nights, but I particularly like Paul Thomas Anderson's choice of character arcs over plot, even though there is plot. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this is and like the square. It's in many ways almost a collection of scenes, but there is a structure. There's more of a structure to it. Definitely more of a plot uh, of great scenes of these characters being in, in unique circumstances. And really the, the film is an arc. It's Joaquin Phoenix's character's arc. Yeah. Character arc. Um, but it's the collection of different scenes they have together and the way they abuse each other and the way they show affection to each other. Joaquin Phoenix's sort of tormentedness, you know, having been through a war that's obviously damaged him and not returning to his true love. You know, yeah. But anyways, you were going to say something. I would say, uh, I, I would actually say that's a commonality between all of PTA's movies is that it's more of an interweaving of character arcs than um, plot yeah. at all. You know, very true. Um, yeah, when you when you look at it from a plot perspective, you almost just feel completely lost, like it is just random scenes. You know, yeah. But when you look at everything from that character arc perspective, everything makes sense. Absolutely. You know? But um, no, I, I was actually going to comment on how I think it's funny that uh, how you were talking about it, how you have you, how you like films that have this kind of like primitiveness to it, to the acting. Yeah. And like, I would say every single one of mine has kind of this like quietness and subtlety to the acting. <laughs> sure. <You know>? sure. <laughs> um, it's, it's interesting, the things we like, but yeah. Um, yeah. Um, anyway. Well, yeah. Before we move on, I would just say one last thing about it. I'd say it's a incredibly beautiful movie. The color, the visuals. I believe he used some sort of old timey film as well mm-hmm. uh, in camera uh, shooting this, if I remember that correctly. But the DP, I'm going to butcher this, but I think it's Miha uh, Malamrer and uh, Junior. And yeah, just a beautiful film to look at. So yeah. Um, Go ahead. Cool. Are we on 18? I believe we are. Cool. Okay, so my eight number 18 was uh Ex Machina by Alex Garland, 2014. Uh cool. the AI thriller. That was definitely in the running for me. Yeah. I didn't make it on. <laughs> but <laughs> no, this one for me was just so uh visceral on the first watch. You know, you're just uh 
awestruck by <laughs> what goes on. And um, I don't know. I, I love the commentary on AI. And uh, yeah, no, on, on the first viewing, you know, when you see her as this girl, you're just, you know, baffled by her decisions and you're you're trying to wrap your head around her psychopathy. Sure. Right? Um, but on the second watch, I really noticed this one scene where uh, they are talking about his AI and he shows him this like blue brain thing. Right. Yeah. And he's like, this is her. And I just that clicked that time. And I, I watched the whole film imagining her as this like blue brain thing that had this body you know dehumanized her (laughs) right right and and then it like all just like viewing it from that perspective makes everything you know not a thriller at all like everything just makes complete sense yeah you know and i I really like that as an ai film and like it, it was kind of this deviation from a lot of the ai thrillers that i'd seen in the past where you know a a lot of the i i feel like a lot of the uh ai thrillers that you see before that are kind of in the realm of attributing human qualities to the AI and, you know, them being feeling like a prisoner and wanting to break out. Sure. You know, and like, I, I think this was a great deviation from that because while she was a prisoner and wanted to break out, you know, um, it was more about uh, survival. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because she was going to be deleted and upgraded, you know, mm. um, but no, it was, it was, I thought it was great. Yeah. Um, Alex Garland has been a interesting guy to, to watch so far. I, you know, you need to watch his uh, new television show. I believe you can watch it on Hulu called devs and we mm-hmm. absolutely need to do, it's a one-off season. Cool. Cool. So we absolutely need to do an episode. On I love a mini, good mini series, but yeah. Um, no, I think, well, one of the big things that was great about this film for me was just like, I don't I don't even know what the budget was, but I know it was tiny. Yeah. You know, um, and seeing someone be able to pull off kind of like a single location film that looks so great, you know, just bl- blows a lot of blockbuster, like f- not not even just blockbusters, but like, you know, a hundred million dollar productions. Sure. Right. It just blows them out of the water, you know, in terms of just um, even the CG and stuff. Um, it looks perfect. It's so good. It's per- yeah. yeah. And, um, I really like the aesthetic of the film too, where it kind of, they kind of use this very, uh, quiet, almost atmospheric tone throughout. Mm. And I felt like it yeah. actually added to the, it has a great element. It's true. You know? Um, and then anytime there was any sort of, uh, um, activity, you know, it was almost off putting because of it. Um, but yeah, no. So that was my number 18. I love that film. Nice. I've seen it multiple well, times. One thing, uh, one thing I'd like to say is uh, we need to do an episode about genre because I hear you using this, uh, the word thriller. And I am uh, the, the thriller genre confounds me. And uh, we need to do uh, a deep dive into that at some point. I want to sure. learn it now, but we definitely need to. Um, but anyways, what, what, what number are we on? 18. 18? All right. Well, my number 18 choice is a guy who had an incredible decade, frankly, um, and that's David O. Russell. It's the 2013 film American Hustle. Oh, nice. I love that one. It's so good. I've seen it probably about four times now. Um, the acting is just insane. It's really on another level. 
and everyone is just, you know, 11 out of 10 firing on all barrels. Mm-hmm. And uh, Amy Adams, Christian Bell, Bradley Cooper, Jennifer Lawrence, Jeremy Renner, Louis C.K., you know? Yeah. And plenty of others as well. I loved it. I loved, you know, this was a really good plot in my opinion. I'm not a huge fan of plot, but I like this plot a lot. <laughs> I like that. I liked that it was intermixed with really raw character moments. Like I was saying again, primitive, like I particularly think about the Christian Bale scene with Jeremy Renner, where he has to tell him that he fucked him over and (laughs) he's going to go to jail, even though he's like the good mayor, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, And he's just like, he's like having a heart attack and getting beat up by Jeremy Renner at the same time as the family's (laughs) on the stairs, you know? Um, I love the, I love, you know, Christian Bale's like, you know, I think people have said this a million times, but he's like the modern De Niro in the sense of just like, being able to transform his body, you know, yeah. having the pot belly with the bald head and <laughs> putting on the, uh, the, the tuft of hair with the glue yeah. and the hairspray. It's great. Jennifer Lawrence is this crazy character. She does so well as that. Uh, Bradley Cooper as this almost like a psychopathic type figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, I love the ongoing uh, plot line or, or storyline, I would say, with Louis C.K. and telling the story with the ice fishing. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I would leave it there. I love his moving camera. He's definitely, David Russell knows how to do momentum and communicate momentum through scenes with the camera. This is another thing that Fincher does for me, frankly, is the scenes begin to, to meld together. You know, there's less of a, a distinction between scenes. And before you know it, you're trying to watch one scene and you've watched five and then the movie ends. Yeah. Know? Yeah. Excellence in transition. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I describe it like I normally think of a movie moving from left to right, like it's on a timeline edited, you know? Yeah. But those films, it's like the movies in 3D space. And I'm sort of like, it's moving past me, like the frames are hitting. Like, like it's moving inward. Yeah. It's weird. <laughs> Towards the center. Yeah. No, I love it. But, uh, <laughs> But yeah, I would, uh, I'd end it there. That's all I got to say about that, but it's a great movie. Cool. Cool. All right. So, uh, number 17. Yeah. Okay. Um, another director that had an incredible, incredible decade, 2013 Denny Villeneuve, uh, enemy. Okay. Yeah. This is his only film of this decade that I did not put on my list. Oh, really? Yeah, okay. top 50. It would be on the top 50, so no, this, go for it. This film is so well put together, and we will do an episode on it at one point. We actually did try to record an episode, and we hated it, so we cut it. Yeah. <laughs> but, it taught um, us a lot about what not to do. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, and, you know, uh, this film is... is crazy when you watch it the first time and you know you'll just be completely at a loss for what's going on if you know what's going on i'm you know i'd be very surprised on the first watch at least yeah but um essentially uh the film is kind of about this uh duality between this um man who's cheating on his wife right Mm -hmm. um and it's told in uh it's it's told in this very uh mixed use way, the term you know oh yeah so um it's actually weird We're i, I would do actually, an episode on this yeah we, we'll do a deep yeah, dive on intro. this but um i i've gone back and forward between whether i want to call this film surrealist or magical realist and i think that it's actually a film that has both elements and right. we're going to do an episode about surrealism and magical realism at some point like we will romanticism so yeah, yeah. keep an eye out for that um 
but yeah, this film in particular really illustrates how you can bring um, both to the screen, even though they're two different sides of the coin. Yeah. You know? Um, and yeah, no, we'll, we'll do a whole deep dive on it. I don't think I can like really describe it perfectly with um, a so limited amount good. of time, but yeah, no, it's, it's incredible. And it's really um, what I think the main thing that I love so much about it and why it's so high on my list is that um, I, I think Denis Villeneuve really understands something. And it's that um, I, I feel like he understands that emotion kind of um, trumps, right? Where um, a lot of the time, a lot of the time, the symbolism and stuff that he uses is there in, in order to evoke a specific emotion rather than mm. um, have a like a superficial meaning. Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally see what you mean. Yeah. Um, As and opposed this, to using some sort of like a cult symbol, he'll, you know, just use a spider. <laughs> right. Exactly. Well, and it's, it's like if you'd, if you asked a director that made use of heavy symbolism in their movies, like what they would use to symbolize love, most directors wouldn't be like, well, a spider. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and this movie is so perfectly designed in my opinion. And um, I always personally, I have, I have a rule where anytime in my scripts, when I'm making use of a symbol, you always use it three times, right? Because um, rule three, right. Once is an event, two is a coincidence. Three is a pattern, right? I do love that. The way of thinking about filmmaking is uh, creating a pattern and then, establishing it even more and then you know juxtaposing the pattern breaking the pattern right right well and i love that because like i think a lot of filmmakers don't really um think about that too much and then they end up making use of symbols like once maybe twice and mm -hmm. there's no real way to um distinguish what it means which is why like everyone comes back and is like well it's subjective right but yeah. um in this one when you see spiders exactly three times right you can really start to break down what he's trying to say with it right yeah but the first time you watch it all you're left with is that emotion right and it's it's awesome because um i think denny villeneuve and miyazaki have this in common where like they they're so good at understanding how to um kind of manipulate your emotion throughout the film that they get your heart to the place that they want it right and okay. then once you break it down and break it down into like um kind of like intellectually and um, you know, take all of the elements that you can understand with your mind and really see what the movie is about. You realize that your heart was there from the beginning. Yeah. You know, and I, I love that. And I love, I love that you can almost use your emotions in the film as a compass um, to figure out their films. But yeah, Denis Villeneuve has proven over multiple films, you know, that he is, very very incredibly aware of what he's doing yeah um but he's fantastic no yeah we'll do we'll do more on him i'm sure but oh yeah we'll cover yeah. it all at some point <laughs> yeah um cool well uh what's your number 17 my number 17 um is once again the man the myth legend paul thomas anderson okay uh phantom thread uh the year 2017 mm. uh that actually got just, knocked off for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, but, hey, enemy got knocked off for me. So, yeah. There you go. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
uh, it goes back to what I was talking about with the immigrant, frankly. This is once again an, an, uh, a great Western romance to me, mm. frankly. And I love its uniqueness. I love the visuals in this are stunning. Yeah. They're even more stunning to know that he shot it himself. Anderson yeah. Shot it himself with some ACs. Uh, blows me away. Daniel Day Lewis is a legend, obviously. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know about uh, this girl um, that played his love interest until this movie. Um, what's her name? Uh, Vicky Creeps. Yeah. I believe. Um, but yeah, she's fantastic. And I don't have much to say about this movie. I don't even truly understand the the big message I have. It's emotional impression. You know, it's definitely yeah. a movie I continue to need to rewatch. It's one of the few on this list I've only seen once. Um, but all I know is at the very end of it, I was just like, man, I want a girlfriend who poisons me. <laughs> <laughs> I just was like, man, I want that. So I totally understand Daniel Lee Lewis at the very end there. Yeah, where he's yeah. just like when he realizes it's poisoned and then he just fucking eats it anyways i right. was like yeah man i feel that right now i feel that yeah yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's great but yeah I, I mean we could just leave it there I, i'm sure we'll do an episode of that sometime for sure it's for sure paul thomas anderson so all right yeah go ahead and give your number 16 so number 16 for me was another damien chazelle movie uh first okay. man okay first man was on my list at around spot 22 okay but i it got knocked off oh yep there you go <laughs> Um, but I, I saw this multiple times in theaters and I don't, I can't really speak to how factually accurate it is. Um, but it's accurate in a more important way. <laughs> yeah. It, to me, it doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. um, this is such a good film and I think Damien Chazelle really kind of, uh, he, he's proving himself to be a master director, you know? With a La La Land yeah. this and Whiplash and, um, but uh, yeah, no, having this whole film, this mission to the moon that really, um, that really circles the death of a child. Yeah. Right. Um. It, yeah. Did you want to say something? Yeah. Uh, if you wouldn't mind, uh, one thing I loved about this movie and something I've used in my short films, uh, as well is the sort of you know i love that scene where he's with his baby you know before the yeah. before she dies and they're in the room and it's essentially just doing hard cuts as he's sort of like you know um cheering the baby up making sure the baby's not crying licking the baby while she's sleeping i love using that sort of technique in cinema and i love seeing it illustrated these emotional moments yeah and hard cuts well it's like an emotional people line. in raw moments exactly yeah um yeah. but it's I also love when um, actually to tie this together with enemy a little bit. Um, I think both films kind of do this in a way to, you know, obviously this one in a more uh, heartfelt way, um, mm. but where, where they kind of create these uh, emotional through lines where you get to experience um, exposition in a way that's not uh, dialogue. Okay. Right. And I love that. And I've said multiple times, I love, I love good exposition, you know, <laughs> Um, yeah. And and I'm I'm a huge believer that exposition can be so fun, you know. Sure. And I think a lot of films kind of run run this problem where they're like, well, you got to get through the boring exposition at the beginning to be able to enjoy <laughs> all the fun stuff later. So let's just get it over with, yeah. you know. And so there, there, what is it like? This Hollywood standard is like 15 minutes is when your movie starts. 
right? Yeah. So you're just like blowing out exposition the whole time. And like, I'm a, I'm a huge believer in, you know, one, uh, emotional and captivating exposition being much more effective, but yeah. two, um, that exposition can be anywhere in your film, right? You can have, I feel you. Um, you, you know, and there, I think there's some places where it's inappropriate, uh, take, a which, uh, the uh, last Sherlock Holmes movie with Robert Downey Jr. where they kind of okay. like the whole twist at the end was that he figured out a clue before the film started, you know, oh, interesting. and uh, like it was, it was just such a kick in the nuts, you know, <laughs> but uh, no, no, no. But like if done well, I think exposition can be used um, amazingly. And I, I think uh, first man is a huge, um example of this right where a lot of this film is actually exposition i would argue yeah i would say it's it's exposition with a character arc yeah um but even the uh even the final moment right um i would yeah. i would argue is exposition where where he kind of <laughs> like uh drops his daughter's uh bracelet on the moon yeah right the emotional climax yeah and um it's exposition in terms of like the why of what he's doing mm-hmm. you know and I, th- I think to that point there's a lot of um speculation by the characters surrounding him that he's suicidal and that he like th- doesn't have anything to live for anymore but it kind of ignores his drive to succeed you know sure and I don't know. I, I think I think this uh this film being about um this very very uh intimate relationship between um a father and his dead child. Yeah. You know. Um No, it's very it, good it's, and you know. Yeah, it was Ryan Gosling's decade has been amazing you know this is just another of his amazing films can i just say whoever whether whether it's ryan gosling himself or his agent whoever is choosing his roles is brilliant i think it's ryan gosling i was thinking about this the other day part of an actor's um career whether or not it turns out great is not of course just their talent and their luck but their taste oh and i think ryan gosling has fantastic taste oh 100 because i look at someone like steve carell and i see some of the projects he's chosen to be on recently. And I was just like, it just seems like he doesn't have great taste, even though he's so great, you know? Right. Right. So I can definitely see that. But yeah, um, uh, yeah no, no. So that's my uh, number 16. Cool. Yeah. Uh, my number 16 then is a film that I love that we have talked about already on the first episode that we'll probably do a standalone on at some point and also probably do a standalone about the ideas it has given to us at some point. Mm -hmm. And that is of course the master Ridley Scott, uh, 2012 film Prometheus. Nice. That actually was, I think, I think it was 25 at one point it got knocked off, but no, I love that film too. Uh, there is not a single film that has taught me more about filmmaking has taught me more about talking about film mm. that has taught me more about uh, people exterior to film like critics 
and thinking about film and all these different things than this film, Prometheus. Yeah. And that's why it's on my list. It is, it's just taught me so incredibly much. It is, you know, there's, I don't think there's a film I thought about more and not just thought about it in terms of the characters and the plot and the meaning, but why people are perturbed by certain aspects of it or make fun of certain aspects of it. And it has taught me, I think, so far the best way I've discovered to watch films and to appreciate films and how to almost rank films in my mind. And um, I don't really need to talk about it much in particular. It's beautiful to look at. It has great sci-fi premise. It's got for as big of a budget. It's got, it's got really original content and ideas in it. Um, Michael Fassbender, the great Michael Fassbender. I love Michael Fassbender Mm -hmm. does great in it. You have Nomi Rapice. Okay. Guy Pierce. Yeah. Charlie's Theron. Just great actors, but I'd really just leave it there. I'd just say that an intense study of Prometheus is probably um, better for you than reading film critics or taking film theory classes. Definitely. And matter. God knows we've spent so many hours of our lives defending this film. Yeah, um, <laughs> very much so. Yeah. Um, and it was actually one of, I think, our first uh, moments of friendship when we both realized that we had spent so much time defending this film from other people. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and and it's really one of those things that uh, you know we we didn't we didn't name a form of criticism after this film for no reason, yeah. you know. Um, I think I think Prometheus was one of those films that was really kind of like a mirror to whether it, that was intentional or not um, to the way the West watches films, you know. Sure. And like everybody that loves film, and sorry, I just keep my mic, but everyone that loves film and everybody that kind of. Uh, can watch it with an earnest heart, you know, love this mm-hmm. film, you know, yeah, and it's a great film. every single without fail, every single pseudo intellectual, like, <laughs> you know, mild film fans. Yeah. Yeah. Those, those yeah. types of guys, you know, the ones who, you know, when you talk to them, you can hear the YouTube, the, the YouTube yeah. critic, uh, verbatim just spill out of their <laughs> mouth. <laughs> you know very much um whatever whatever youtube critic it is you know but uh-huh. you know I, I i that's one of the things i hate most is when you know someone's voicing an opinion about film and you're like you literally use the exact same yeah. words that you know <laughs> honest trailers did about this film yeah you know and you can tell exactly. that their 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 take on the film is completely unoriginal and completely just absorbed yeah. you know it's people's obsession with being clever you know? Yeah. And like, uh, if you're clever or you say something clever about something, then it's automatically right. You know what I mean? Like, right. Right. You can be as clever as you want in like tear into any of the films we've mentioned, you know? Oh yeah. There's not a single film that doesn't, um, you know, can't be torn to pieces by cinema sins, frankly. And you know, the, the sort of arrogant type of clever film criticism. Yeah. No, I, um, I had a, I think I had a, um, comment on one of cinema sins videos where I just like went through and just, obliterated every single point he was trying to make and uh, i think got deleted but it was was, uh i don't know maybe it's still there but but yeah this film has given me the idea recently um of maybe you know maybe in the future here i'll write a book of uh film criticism but it'll be a parody and it's going to (laughs) be like a 300 400 page book about criticizing prometheus as if I was one of these CinemaSins people, but it'll be a parody. So really, I will be the joke, you know? I love that. Uh, that and I that's think that'd, actually, be, that'd be a lot of fun. Yeah, that's <laughs> actually like a common thing in Japan. 
is artists yeah. artists will make things that are like they'll make pieces of art that kind of like uh like exemplify everything that critics critics say they want you know so all the oh. critics love it but it's lacking on the internal structure that masters understand sure right so sure. basically uh it, it's a parody in itself and these artists kind of like wait for a year after all these critics start gushing over it and then they reveal how bullshit the whole entire process was nice you know and it's just like yeah. it, it happens once in a while in japan and i think that it's something that would be really funny to see here in the u.s yeah you know i'd, I'd like to do it as a book rather than an actual you know piece of cinema sure. just because that's their medium that they're using yeah um to definitely. tear into this other than video essay and so yeah I'd, i i would you know if i ever had the time i might do that but anyways yeah you want to do 15 yeah sure i'll go for it um so speaking of shitty critics <laughs> uh my <laughs> number 15 is a film alita battle angel and okay this sweet. one this one that was actually lower than I think Parasite and 1917 for 2019 on my 2019 list, but is higher on my top 25 for the decade list. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So that's not a mistake before anyone points it out. I did that on purpose, (laughs) but um, no, it's, it's, I loved this film so much. And I think it was one of those films that was very easy to criticize. Right. When you watch it the first time, you know, it's really easy to fall into kind of these pitfalls of like, oh, this is cringy, right? Because you're hearing cringy dialogue, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. you're hearing or or you think that, oh, the, the filmmaker is naive because, you know, this girl has the these expectations is. that are ridiculous, yeah, right? And it's not really until you like get further into the film that you realize that a lot of this or sorry that every single one of these things was completely intentional right that you're literally watching a movie about this girl that was born yesterday right um yeah and everything about this film is about growth were you born and- yesterday <laughs> yeah exactly yeah. I-, I really wanted to see that uh i really wanted to see that criticism on rotten tomatoes of some critic saying you know what was he born yesterday? And I, I, I wanted to just be like, yes, she was. Yeah. <laughs> but um, no, I, I have these like thoughts in my head of like, you know, re- responding to these critics like that, but I, I've never done it, but it would be fun. That's what you do. You know? Rather than imaginary arguments with people, you know, it's, it's critics. Right. Right. Shampoo exactly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, actually, you know what I've noticed is that um, critics get, get a lot of heat on Rotten Tomatoes anyways, from the, from the general yeah. populace, because you know, they can tell that they're full of shit so yeah um but anyways um about alita uh you have this film about this girl who was literally born yesterday and she's naive and she's like she has this colorful outlook on the world you know and at the beginning it looks exactly like a um i don't know like a teeny bopper you know stupid romance movie that was based off of a young adult book or something sure you know and uh she has this super, super, uh, like lie of a romance, you know, mm-hmm. and she's giving it everything she has. And like on the first viewing, I, w- I was thinking that, wow, this guy is really not selling these lines, you know? <laughs> yeah. And then 
eventually, uh, it was actually, it wasn't even on my first viewing. It was the second viewing when I realized that, uh, you know, that the whole time the plan was to sell this girl for parts, right? That everything mm-hmm. that he was presenting to her is a lie, right? And mm-hmm. like, even when he becomes unwilling to sell her for parts, he's still um, like, he's still selfish. You know, he's still going for his own dreams. And it's not until the very end, like the literal very end of his life where he realizes what's right in front of him and this like sees this girl for what she is. And then, you know, Edward Norton kills him. But yeah. <laughs> um, Which I love that Edward Norton's just in that movie. You know, yeah, well, like I mean, I think, I, I think it's, it's, built for a sequel and i think i think that a lot of um, americans i hope it gets one well it, it is it's already greenlighted greenlit but oh, that's um great. That's i think fantastic. i think it got greenlit like three weeks after the release before it even made a profit um no i, I think good, i think this uh, is i think this is this is uh james cameron's uh passion project so um you know as, as long as avatar is still making money i expect that there will still be sequels of alita you know, as a side note, I will laugh in a sort of nihilistic manner if these like Avatar movies that he spent like a billion dollars on or more end up not making any money. Oh, you know? that would be it would just be <laughs> so horrifying. Sad. Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I doubt it. I doubt it because okay, it probably, here's, it's James Cameron. You just don't bet against James. Right, Cameron, right. So, but here's <laughs> here's the other thing too: is that when it's a sequel, people people. Sorry, I shouldn't say people. Producers, if there are any producers listening, don't be dumb. Sequels make money because of the prequel in the first week, right? Yeah. Whatever that movie does in the first week is not attributed to that movie. It is attributed to (laughs) to the prequel. That's true. Right? Whatever movie came before it, the success of that directly corresponds to the success of the the first week's success of the sequel. So, like, I hate when, like... um. I, I hate when you see movies or any actually any any medium at all where you have a really shitty sequel and they think that it's amazing because it made so much money in opening week. Yeah. You know, and it's like, no, that means that like if, if you made a lot of money opening week and there was it's a sharp drop reputation. off, that means that people yeah. loved the the first one, you know, and then you brought in a sequel and they were so excited. So everybody came to well, see Well, this is sequel. sort of like what happened to Han Solo, which is exactly you know, unfortunate. You know, it didn't get a graded on its own performance you know right right so, so. i don't know i think so elite is definitely getting a sequel but i think um movies that are built like sequels often get a lot of shit in um the u.s because um we have this weird fascination in the u.s with uh just the same plot structure over and over you know and while, while we're well, kind of like while you fun liking. with our characters and we try to make like deep and profound characters as far as plot goes we kind of just like slap something standard onto it and call it good you know sure so there's not a lot of experimentation with plot and i think that when when a movie is built for a sequel it like i think it creates this feeling like it was open-ended you know to a lot of to a lot of people watching it when they don't realize that it's clearly it's like if you really understand plot and you don't like you don't just treat it like a you know uh framework sticker that you just apply to every single film you know when you start really getting into the nitty-gritty and all the pieces like when you see a movie that's built for a sequel it becomes painfully obvious right yeah that's true um which this one was painfully obvious in that it was it was leading into a series 
Right. Um, and, and like, I would say that this one almost feels like a pilot episode. Right. Um, yeah, I could see that it does. It's very much an origin story. Right. Right. Um, but yeah, no, um, kind of back to my previous point. Uh, you kind of start with this very rom-commy vibe, you know, or not even rom-com, yeah. just like, you know, that young adult, like Maze Runner, yeah. Hunger Games, you know, vibe where it's like colorful. It's pretty standard shot. Like the characters seem like very vapid and one dimensional, you know, and then the facades start falling away and she starts learning about the world. She gets like she has her naive uh, speech in the bar that gets universally laughed at by you know, all the mercenaries, she gets literally torn to pieces, you know, and almost murdered. Uh, and then like, as the film goes forward and forward and you kind of, um, see her lose faith in everybody around her, you know, and see her, see what's really behind everything and how, you know, like nothing is this colorful, bright world that she, experienced at the beginning you know by the end you actually see a tonal shift in the style as well right and instead of this like colorful uh kind of uh these colorful like moving um vibrant shots you get these these very static um like grainy um like close-up shots you know, and the colors are even desaturated and there's there's this whole complete tonal shift from beginning to end. And it, like the more you watch this film, the more you see it. And I think Robert Rodriguez did an excellent job at um, bringing this film, this uh, manga series to life. And I think James Cameron did an excellent job in choosing him. Yeah, you know, I think he was the perfect choice. But yeah, no. So that's that's my number uh, 15. Uh, I think I think it's one of those films that is severely, severely underrated. I agree with you. Yeah. All righty. Um, well, I, I have a number 15. I'm pretty sure you have it on your list, but probably higher. So it is Christopher Nolan's 2014 film Interstellar. Uh, yep, I have it higher. All right. So we'll get to that then. Uh, do you want to do your 14? Sure. So my 14 is David Fincher's 2014 film, Gone Girl. Oh, well, I have that higher, awesome. so I guess we'll have to do Let's that later. Move on. <laughs> 14 is a wash. Um, um, uh, yeah, do number 13. Then. Oh, no, I have to do number 14. Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, so my number 14 film is a film you had a little lower. You should repeat your number here in a second. Uh, but it is... Sam Mendes, 2012, 007 film, Skyfall. Yes. Okay, so um, mine was number 19. Uh, above Mission Impossible, which I said trumps 007. <laughs> so be ready for me to be uh, a hypocrite, which I'm actually not going to be. But, you know, <laughs> at first glance, yeah, it definitely so, looks like it. Um, so yes, uh, the reason I have this as number 14 for Skyfall is I am a huge fan of the new 007 movies. Uh, I was a big 007 kid. Me and my friend, whenever we hung out as child, a friend, we would watch the classic 007 movies. Um, you know, all of the actors, Pierce Bronze and Sean Connery, the ones in between. And in particular, what I really like at Skyfall is I sort of think of 007 as, um, 
as a spy action film. Yeah. Um, but what I like about these ones as opposed to the earlier ones is they elevate the spy element of it mm-hmm. over the action part, which is, I feel like it was versed in the older films and they focus in more on the character and tone as opposed to what I would want to term externalities like props and villains and this sort of thing. Yeah. And, uh, I really like that the world is sort of characterized by, well, by the main character, 007. You sort of, it feels like the world fits him like a glove. Yeah. Uh, as opposed to him being an exceptional, um, or what I would say is him in exceptional circumstances. Okay. Uh, um, can I make an argument One here? thing I, well, just, yeah, sure. I'm almost done here on my little run. Um, but. What I would say in particular is I really like the the new franchise is in the uh, that it's not episodic. I don't like the episodic nature of 007. I really like that all these films line up and that we're about to get the last one that caps it off. Mm-hmm. But uh, particular a couple of things about Skyfall and then you can give your little your bit is I love Javier Bardem. Mm-hmm. I think Javier Bardem is fantastic in this movie. Yeah. And I would say. Um, the tone in this in this film uh, at the lack of action, there is great action in this, but just the character moments, the moment where Javier Bardem takes the thing out of his mouth when 007 has to go back home. I love these things and it's beautiful, especially that scene at the end with the fire around his um, oh, yeah. parents' house is beautiful to look at. It's insane. That was. Uh, but go ahead. Okay. So the one thing that I wanted to kind of uh, push back on was. Uh, um, sorry. So, so the one thing that I wanted to push back on was that I feel like whenever a director is breaking into any existing IP, um, it mm. is really the externalities that you have to respect, right? Because when it comes to any IP, it's the externalities that, uh, link, link them together. Yeah. Right? But he's respecting the externalities of Daniel Craig's 007. Um, right. Well, no, I, th- I think that I would argue that Sam Mendes is respecting the externalities of all the, um, James Bond films. Well, I, I'd agree, yeah. but, uh, um, it's definitely Daniel Craig's version. Sure. But, um, basically what all I'm saying is that like, uh, I think uh, for me, at least Skyfall is Skyfall is the exception, you know? Well, th- you know, this is one thing that maybe would clarify a difference here is I don't think this is as dramatic as a break with the older films as I think you, you view it as um, I understand that in Casino Royale and Quantum Solace, there's less of the gadgets and this sort of thing. Well, There's, there's no, um, there's no gadgets. Uh, he definitely feels like a real man, a real spy. You know, there's no larger than life element to him. Um, there's, well, there is larger than life. There's the crazy parkour. There's all those kinds of scenes. I, there are car chases. Well, I, I meant in the, uh, in the previous films, not this one. Well, in, that's in Casino Royale and Palmasalis as well. Parkour. In the, I thought that was you in Skyfall, hit. wasn't there? Uh, no, I think the the parkour is Casino Royale, if I'm not mistaken. Okay, but oh yeah, yeah no, you're right. But um, but that wasn't him either. That was that was a villain, right? And he was having trouble keeping up. And the well, uh, he won. I sure. don't know. I would, I would sure. disagree. But um, I felt like this James, you know, in Quantum of Solace, he gets into like one actual gunfight and you know it's with two other guys and ends up getting shot you know which i let me let me just say this i love that you know and as a stylistic choice in a film that's what i would choose to do right yeah um but if someone came at me with the james bond ip and said make a james bond film 
right? I would never do that, right? And I think that's the that's the big difference is like, I think there was, I think there is a classy way to do James Bond and there is a way to like kind of pull it more into um, good cinema rather than just, uh, I, I would say that the the previous ones were very, uh, uh, almost like hokey. There was yeah. some B movies. I don't know. Yeah. Those old yeah. Films for sure. um, but it has a cult following for that exact thing, you know? And it's like, if you pull that away from it, um, you're pulling away what people love about that IP, you know? Well, I would, as a counterpoint, say that these Daniel Craig 007s have been more successful than any of the previous ones. Um, I mean, Quantum Solace did horribly. Well, yeah, but Casino Royale and Skyfall did amazingly. Yeah. Um, uh, Casino, I think Casino Royale did pretty good, right? And Skyfall just, you know, blew everything out of the water. Yeah. yeah, I mean, Casino Royale did really good. I mean, compared to the, even the ones before it, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Skyfall blew everything out of the water. I believe Spectre even did fairly well, even though. Well, I actually, Spectre, the, Spectre the is the one that actually exemplifies exactly what I was just talking about, where these producers saw the opening week of Spectre and said, wow, we did so well. You know, yeah. and then. No, no, and I disagreed with you yeah. in saying that it's the weakest of the four. Yeah, yeah. But um, no, I, th- I think. I think uh, if I remember right, uh, Skyfall was kind of a Hail Mary for them. Uh, these producers. It was. It was sort of Daniel Craig's last shot at it. Yeah. Yeah. And they just gave it to Sam Ren- Mendez and said, hey, uh, write this and direct it. Sam Mendez said that his inspiration was Nolan's Dark Knight. Or, sorry, no, no. He didn't write it, did he? I don't think so. No, I don't think yeah, he, he did. Directed. He said his inspiration was. Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight that you can take a blockbuster and talk about real things with it. Right. Uh, which is another thing about this uh, compared to Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, you have message there, you have an insight, but you know, Sam Mendes has a real insight here about essentially yes. oversight and, you know, intelligence community in the West and so forth. Right. Right. Is he, um, um, is he doing the new one? Yes. Okay. That's he good. did Spectre too though. So, <laughs> you know, yeah, we'll but see. Spectre had a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, from from what I heard, Spectre had a lot of uh, politics involved in it. Okay. Um, yeah. No. I, I. So the big the big issue that I have with these James Bond films, like I said, is that like it doesn't fit the criteria of the old films. You know, where like what I mean when I say he's mysterious is that you literally do not know where this man came from, right? Like. And wh- it's interesting I, that you choose Skyfall as the one you like then considering it answers that question. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, exactly. Um, that's actually the the part that most disappointed me about Skyfall is like, Oh, okay. <laughs> um, well, and I was thinking like when I first saw this film, I was like, Oh my God, this would have blown everything out of the water, which I mean, this film is number 19 on my list, right? It did blow yeah, everything out so. of the water. But <laughs> like this might've been single digits on my list had it done this where uh, like I was kind of hoping that when you, you know how there was that like the title of 007 and he was kind of figuring out where he came from mm-hmm. um i was really hoping that like he that 007 was truly just a title and what they were getting at was that every single double 007 that we've seen existed in the same universe and they, they didn't all play the same person but it was just this like title Oh. You know, and I, I, I thought that's what they were going for. And I was like, that's that would have been so cool, you know, to have this kind of like 
I mean, it's a cool idea, but I don't, it doesn't really matter to me either way. Yeah. Well, it, it would have, I think it would have fit into the message of this film too, where, you know, it is about this like intelligence community and how, um, how fragile, almost like fragile it is, yeah. you know, and, uh, how it kind of has this like disregard for the people behind, um, like the expendability of it yeah. right right and and I, I felt that like having that title of 007 and having it be like like showing that you know this this is a hollow title right like this mm. isn't you as a person this is this is a role that's being fulfilled by you at this moment you know and if it would i, I felt like it would have felt you would have kind of had this moment of like uh um ho- like hollowness right with it yeah. where, which i i thought would have been incredible but um yeah, it's interesting. It's almost it almost came across a little bit differently, where the message was more about you know it's up to these unique individuals, uh, right, <laughs> regardless of their their rank to to save us essentially, right, right. You'll have people like Carvier Bardem's character that fall through the cracks and uh, yeah, end up you know well and and um, in their- actually to link back to our whole idea of like life affirming movies, where like you know the life affirming movies that kind of base it off of uh, you know. Um, because I, sorry, before I go there, I think either way it would have been about unique individuals fulfilling, um, what basically becoming what they needed to in order to save, um, you know, save the world. But sure, um, I think in one version it would have been like in the in the version that they showed it was like you know double O sevens, you know, going to become that unique individual. But in the other one, it like I felt like there would have been that layered moment where it was like you know 007 isn't him you know and now we have this nameless man who's becoming the individual that we need and i felt like that would have been that would have actually proven that point even to a greater extent you know just like with life affirming movies if you go into the shit you affirm life more rather than just like it's the uh spider-man into the multiverse message yeah <laughs> sure <laughs> you're yeah. all spider-man uh, but <laughs> i don't know well not not, not necessarily that, that, but I, uh, because i don't think i don't think like that would have been saying anybody can be james bond right but that like sure but that like 007 this mysterious man like that would have brought that mystery back into it too you know yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I said this earlier when you brought it up initially, but I I do sort of think this is where our major differences are coming from is, you know, you like the uh, the externalities, what I've termed the externalities, well, no, the I, plot. No, but um, before you go on well, that, okay, I you don't can, like You them, can choose different right? like, words. Not, you could, I'm not a huge 007 fan, right? I like 007 and I've liked them for what it is, you know? Sure. But like, I would I mean, always you can put it the way you want it, but... Sure. Right. I mean, you could put it the the way you want it. Just, just I'm just trying to term it so I can sure, communicate. Sure. In just saying that you know, as we've established, I'm more of a character guy, and you're more of a plot guy, and that doesn't mean that you don't really love fantastic characters and strive for fantastic characters, right? You know, we're just trying to show a little bit of a difference in uh, in uh, priority, and uh, I think I think it really comes down to the same thing for me. Whereas I, you know, use the words. Uh, um, I think you, I don't, maybe you didn't, but about uh, getting rid of some of these, these, what I was terming externalities and how that's what people, you should respect the franchise, you know, that's what people came for in the past. Mm-hmm. And my only way, my, my counterpoint would just be, I don't think it truly got rid of them. There were some, I admit it's a lot fewer. 
I think it was just sort of reversing the importance where they elevated, similar to how I said, they elevate the spy over the action in these new ones. They elevate the character over the gadgets and the stunts, but they still have the gadgets and the stunts. Well, um, I mean, and I just prefer that. I like, I like 007 as a character study <laughs> and that's what these movies are. It's a character study on uh, 007 uh, in many ways. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I, well, I think, I think you still could have done that while, while, uh, because even though you say that like they haven't really gotten rid of all the externalities, like I think they, I think especially in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace, they really like pushed it and made it a point that they were getting rid of the externalities. Right. And I, I, I think I like kind of what I, what I felt like when, when I saw these movies for the first time was like, especially Qu- Casino Royale where I, where I watched this and I was like, what an awesome spy thriller. Right. And my friend that loves that hates James Bond and thinks it's stupid loves this movie, which isn't a good sign, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I love James Bond from a kid. I had a friend, uh, my best friend at the time, uh, his name was Connor, who loved James Bond. We'd watch them together. He likes these movies. I would say also, I would, I would sort of throw a little bit of wrench in there and say, I believe there is a Pierce Bronson James Bond movie. I forget the name. It's been a while since I watched it. It was probably around twelve or eleven. Where he, it is more of a, it's similar to these in the sense that I believe he's in prison or imprisoned and, you know, he goes through a tougher time and you see him definitely more as a man. Uh, it's more about him as a character as opposed to, well, um, see, you know, okay. an overemphasis on the props and the stunts. But I'm not so. disagreeing that it's a well-made film, right? I think all of, yeah, no, I, I think all of them, save for Spectre, are well-made films, right? No, I get you. I'm just saying that your argument about what 007 is, is maybe not a hundred percent. You know, I would just, I would contest it a little bit, but we should save this for an episode about that sure. because we could go sure. on for Here, hours to, to um, round it out. Um, let me just finish ahead. my point is that like, I think like these films, if you watch them make a very distinct point to get rid of like larger than life villains, gadgets, you know, the mystery behind him. Like they really, they really do a lot to explain who he is and why he is what he is. And I think like, like I was saying, all of these attributes are things that I consider to be good things in film. Right. But I have a very, very um, distinct belief that when you are handling someone else's IP, you leave your ego at the doorstep and you make that person's IP, right? As best as you can, right? And like in the places that you can be creative, you should be creative. But in the places that like you really shouldn't be creative if you're trying to respect what came before you, like keep those parts rigid and work within your creative restraints, right? Yeah. And that's kind yeah, of- I see, I see what you're saying. Yeah, that's, all, that's all I'm really saying is like there, there needed to be a bit more of- um, uh, like respect towards the source material in my opinion. And I think that that's what Skyfall has. Right. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I totally get what you're saying. And my main thing is I don't disagree with the philosophy you laid out there. I just contest its uh, specific uh, application to these new 007 films, but well, yeah, we can do an episode about that. Yeah. Well, and, and we, like, I think, I think it's very important to understand why quantum of solace flopped. I don't, I mean, it, it didn't, it didn't, once again, I would, once again, this is another thing I would uh, contest. I would contest the the use of the word flop, but. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, um, do you want to move on and do you want to do 13? I think we've. Uh, yeah. 
we've said everything we're going to say unless we want to do a solo episode. <laughs> no, <so>. no. <laughs> uh, yeah. But yeah, no, we should we should at some point do a James Bond episode where we just kind of talk about like James Bond in general yeah. and the new trilogy. You know, yeah. That would be fun. We can, yeah. It'll be good. But um, anyways, 13. Uh, you might have this film on your list somewhere. Uh, it is okay. Christopher Nolan's Inception 2010. I do have that on my list and a little higher than you, apparently. Great. All right. So I'll save it. So, yeah. So we'll do my 13, which is absolutely a film you have higher than <laughs> me on your list, which is, of course, uh, Denis Villeneuve's 2000, excuse me, 2017 film Blade Runner 2049. Yep. Higher on my list. Cool. cool. We'll, we'll save so we'll both. do that then. <laughs> um, why don't we just go ahead and do 12 real fast? Sure. And uh, then we'll end this episode out and we'll start up the next one. Sounds good. So my 2012 is Denny Villeneuve again, uh, 2013's Prisoners. Well, I have that higher on my list, so. <laughs> okay, we finally started getting to the point where we have a lot of consistency. Here. Yeah, yeah, it's the top yeah. half. <laughs> um, so we'll save that one uh, for later on. I think you probably won't have this one, so okay. I guess I'll finish this off this cool. episode. But it is uh, good old Darren Aronofsky's um, 2017 film, Mother okay um did you see this oh okay well it's it's fantastic uh jennifer lawrence i think this is her best role so far i uh you know people love her because of hunger games and um david o russell's films in particular silver linings playbook Mm -hmm. but she was you know i think her sort of entry into cinema was a movie called winter's bone which was great and i think it's her second best performance but this is her top performance in my opinion mother and it's essentially one of the reasons I, I truly love this film is it's sort of a reimagining of of uh, biblical mythology, uh, the Adam and Eve story. Essentially, the the garden, you know, Garden of Eden with uh, the tree of life and um, what is the other one, the tree of knowledge, mm-hmm. and um, and also the story, um, you know, quickly succeeding after. Uh, them getting kicked out of the Garden of Eden with their children and, uh, you know, Adam and Eve's children and so on and like how they murder each other and this sort of thing. But it all takes place, you know, it's an analogy or so on, a representation of that. I forget if analogy is the correct word for that. But as Javier Bardem being a poet in a house that his wife uh, um, builds, and that's sort of like her hobby, her thing. She's sort of taking care of this house in the middle of a beautiful prairie that they live okay. in and she sort of built and restored this house while he writes his poetry. And she, in my, I would argue she's a representation of mother earth creation itself garden, maybe even the garden. Of Eden. Sure. And, um, Javier Bardem is God. He's the poet. He's God. And they have these unexpected guests who are none other than Ab and Eve mm-hmm. and their children. That's cool. Uh, this film is, I would say it's probably surreal. You would probably call it surreal. Okay. Um, it goes through, it sort of enacts the entirety, it attempts to, it's so ambitious. It tries to enact the entirety of world history within the walls of this, you know, maybe like four bedroom house, you yeah. know? Uh, and like, I mean, literally, like at some points there's a war in there that Jennifer Lawrence is like experiencing, you know? Um, and Jennifer Lawrence is pregnant as well. And of course, who is she pregnant with? Who would you think in this biblical analogy? Christ. Yeah. Um, and so I really love this subject matter. And of course it's, Dernanovsky, he's got a lot of environmentalist themes in this, and this is definitely intertwined with that. I would say that's his primary point here. Yeah. 
Um, but it's also, he has got unique comments on theology and his ideas of thinking about God and, and uh, what God is like and so on and what human beings are like in the context of thinking about, you know, their behavior towards mother earth and Christ's behavior towards man, even though how shittily they treat mother earth, you know? Um, I just love it. I fucking love it. The camera is amazing. This it's shot amazing, but it's always on Jennifer Lawrence. The camera, she's in every shot. Really? I don't believe there's a single shot she's not in and it's always following her as well. A lot of the time. So it's really cool that way. I would just say it's, it's, it blew me away. And this is also a horror movie technically. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not a genre film. I would say that. So it's a horror in the descriptive sense. Sure. Um, um hey, hey, before we move on, um, yeah. was Skyfall your number 14? Yeah. I believe I skipped my number 14 on accident. Oh, fuck. Okay. Um, well, we'll just finish that off right there anyways. Uh, yeah. And, uh, well, here, let's, uh, I wouldn't have done my 14th first. So what was your 14th? So my 14 was, uh, David Fincher's 2014 film, Gone Girl. Yeah. Gone Girl. You did mention that and I have it higher than you. Okay. So. Oh, okay. Okay. That's what we did. Cool. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Hey, actually, since, we, since we've had so many that are a wash here, why don't we do 11 really quick and then we'll do our top 10 in the next episode. Yeah, I think we might share every single one of these. We might. These top we 10s. Might. <laughs> uh, I think I have one that you might not have. Yeah, so let's do 11 uh, really quick, and then we'll jump into the top 10 in the next Yeah. Episode. Cool. So Yeah. Um, um, anyways, one quick thing about Mother yeah, yeah. is I just wanted to throw out the name of the cinematographer is Matthew Lebaitiku. Le- <laughs> I Don't you hate this? Everyone's names are so crazy. <laughs> um, but he does Aronofsky's other movies as well. So if you've seen like Black Swan and you've been, you know, or The Fountain or Noah yeah. and you've been blown away by it. I mean, he's one of the guy's names to keep in mind. Yeah. But yeah, sure. go ahead. All right. So my 11 uh, was 2013's uh, Her by Spike Jones. Cool. Um, I That was in contention for me, but. That what? It was in contention on my list, but uh, it would have been maybe like in like the, I think if I did it uh, for top 50, it probably would have been in the 40s for me. Oh, yeah. Okay. But yeah, this one, like blew me away um it's great it's such a great romance film and like you were saying you know we don't have a lot of great romance films in in the west and i think this actually uh um i felt like this film was also another uh criticism actually of exactly what you're talking about right where (laughs) there's this kind of like um because a lot of people want to present this as like an ai movie but like this ai doesn't act anything like ai it just acts like super like advanced human right sure um and really like what i saw in this film a lot was kind of technology um distancing us and i I think the whole premise behind the film kind of revolves around technology being what's stopping us from coming together right and it's like it's really distancing us and we're like falling in love with the technology right um yeah absolutely and no, like how I, I, I just love this film, first of all, you know, and like any, any, any film that like, um, is science fiction and doesn't, you know, turn into just a generic genre film. I, you know, adore, but this one in particular being framed like in a romance, um, it, it almost fulfilled two genre conventions and in, in a way, neither of them. You know, and yeah, um, I think 
so unique as well. The world he creates is so amazing. Oh, and visually it's That was sort of like too. the height of the, yeah. Yeah. That was at like the height of the, the hipster thing too. So it was like <laughs> hipster future, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it was great. Um, but I, I do think it's one of those films uh, that is, you know, science fiction, but really about our current society. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and because it was near future. Right, know? right. Um, and everything was so obviously supposed to be Apple, like, you know, just the sleek, simple design. <laughs> like, you know, yeah. but um, no, just just this. Um, I I think we've generally seen um, c- kind of the criticism that this film is making come true in our world. You know, and Spike Jones is great. Like essentially like what what Joaquin Phoenix is having with this with this machine is what he craves to have in his life right um and he's having this romantic encounter like like and and like it's it's what's stopping his life at the beginning is like what's keeping him empty you know and you you have yeah. these like ridiculous scenes where people are like he, he like I love the whole date scene where he's like trying to date this girl and like he's having phone sex with her and it just becomes horrific extremely <laughs> fast, <laughs> you know? Um, and, and it's uh, so indicative of like how we treat romance with each other, you know? Yeah. And then like, you know, finding, finding almost like this illusion of that through this piece of technology, you know, and having that void fulfilled, um, you know, it was just this, I don't know. I, I thought it was this perfectly made film and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just glad it's around. It's, <laughs> it's a, yeah. You get a strong emotional reaction watching. And I definitely remember that. Yeah. It was very good. Yeah. I watched that in a packed theater at an AMC Cineplex. I watched that in the uh, middle of uh, the night with a, uh, with some dude that was obviously sleeping in the back of the theater and then like an Indian guy sitting two, two rows behind me. So that nice. was that was my experience. You, yeah. um, you share that moment with them now for forever, forever. forever. <laughs> their so their silhouettes will be burned into my brain. <laughs> no, but um, uh, yeah, no, I, I love that movie. I think Joaquin Phoenix is a genius. Um, he's a great actor. Yeah, uh, yeah, he's so fucking good. Yeah, yeah, Spike Jones, man, he needs to do more. Has has he done anything since since since? Uh, I don't think so. Damn! Yeah. Why the fuck not? That was like a hit too, wasn't it? Yeah. No, but I, I, I don't know. I I love this. Uh, I love his film career though. <laughs> Just uh, wasn't he like part of Jackass at one point? Yeah. 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 He was. He's involved with them somehow. I think he's a producer and he's been on some of the skits, which is coming back by the way. Jackass is getting another yeah. film. I'm excited because I like that. You know, don't judge me. No. Um, go for it. <laughs> The one with the the porta potty, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or the the beer being chugged in the ass, yeah. And then his other film that I love a lot is uh, Being John Malkovich. Oh, that was yeah. him. Oh wow, I need to watch that. I haven't seen that. Fuck. Well, he's definitely a guy on my list that I uh, need to add to my list of people to watch the filmography. Yeah. Um, All right. Well. Uh, Oh, go ahead. No, no, that's it. What's your number 11? Oh, actually, I did want to say one thing about oh, her. Sure. Uh, an interesting trivia fact is, uh, wasn't it Samantha Morton? Is that her name? That was initially the voice. And then they switched her out for Scarlett Johansson. I, oh, I didn't know that. I thought it was always Scarlett Johansson. Yeah. 
So that's interesting because I think uh, she did it all on set as well, Samantha Morton. Oh, okay. And then uh, in post, they switched it out with Scar- Scarlett Johansson. Hmm. So interesting little piece of trivia. I know, wonder. Save a movie. I kind of wonder if if they did that to um, remove some humanity from it. Well, um, apparently Samantha Morton's opened up about it and sort of said Spike Jones was just telling her, you know, in the kindest way that she was she was great, but she wasn't right for it. So. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what you tell them, but like, I, I, I want to just like be a conspiracy theorist here and say that maybe that was his intention was to like, because, you know, anytime you have a performance on set, you know, and you catch that like lightning between actors, like that's, that's what you're there for. Right. But in this, sure. for this particular relationship, maybe there, it, it was good to have this like separation between the performances. I can see that. Um, there's my little conspiracy nugget for that film, but <laughs> Um. Yeah. All right. Well, I'll do my eleven, and then we'll finish off this half. Sure. Um, my eleventh film is a movie that blew me away. It was my introduction to this guy, uh, a master and filmmaker that I hold dear to uh, my heart, uh, because partially because I love his films, and partially because, um, he, you know, he's like me. <laughs> That's what I like to think. You know, sure. uh, and um. It's Terrence Malick's 2011 film, The Tree of Life. Okay. And the the reason I say that is because Terrence Malick was a philosophy student who studied under really the only major philosopher to ever write seriously about cinema in a philosophical manner. Mm-hmm. And he's a Catholic, and a lot of his films deal with um, Christian themes, and they also have this sort of uh, poetic quality to them, which I particularly like and I think about a lot. Yeah. Um, so he's a huge inspiration, I should say. That's the that's the word I was thinking about. Not necessarily uh, that he's like me, but an inspiration in the sense that someone like me can do it because of him. Sure. You know? um, this film is sort of, uh, it opens up with, uh, I believe, a quote from the Book of Job or something like that. But anyways, it's very, it's very much like the Book of Job. Even though, once again, we're dealing with Adam and Eve here with the Tree of Life, uh, the symbology. Uh, it's essentially about a family it opens up on a family getting the news that one of their sons has died. And then the rest of the movie is sort of the story of that family when they're younger, when the son hasn't died. Mm-hmm. And there's two sons and a, and a daughter, I believe. And it's Jessica Chasson and Brad Pitt as the parents. Right. And they sort of go through the same tribulation that Job goes through in the Bible where, you know, God has taken everything away from Job because the devil has come and said, hey, um, this guy that you say believes in you so much, that has so much faith in you, it will never break uh, his faith in you. Uh, I bet you if you took away everything from him, he'll break, you know? Mm. And so, you know, it's the very similar thing here where this family is going through that. And I really love the poetic nature. That Once again, it's a, a film with tremendous scope. You know, Terrence Malick illustrates the birth of the universe in this film and the beginning of evolution in this film and connects it with these heavenly themes and particularly with the particular moment this uh, family is going through uh, all is one thing. And then you even get to see them reunited in heaven later on in this great artistic sequence. Um, yeah. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful film. Uh, the sound in this film is particularly amazing out of all the films I've seen. Uh, the sound in a few have blown me away. This is definitely one of those films. It tells you to turn it up louder. It tells you at the beginning of the film it's mixed louder and to turn it up louder. Okay. Uh, uh, the the music, the music is stunning. Mm-hmm. 
and the acting is great. It's very raw acting. You know, I imagine what it would be like to act for Terrence Malick. It's crazy. You know, Ben Affleck said that what Terrence Malick does is he collects paints to paint a picture in the edit room. And that's what you're giving him as you're giving him all these different shades of color. Uh, he's, he's like more than most filmmakers. I believe he exemplifies the idea of creating the film in the edit. Yeah. Um, I actually, uh, I actually gave that advice to someone recently, someone that we both know, but, uh, he shot it down. He was like, no, I'm not doing that. Interesting. But I was like, yeah, you know, you know, (laughs) someone's proven that it works, you know, true. But, uh, no, yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, an interesting note about this is Criterion has released a, a version of this film, mm-hmm. but they he shot this film over the course of, I think, of two decades. Yeah. Believe that or not. Of course, the last bit with Brad Pitt and Jessica Chanson all at once, but he has got so much like, you know, almost like Disney Earth footage in this, you know, yeah. uh, that he shot over the course of a couple decades. Wow. And so much so that when Criterion was going to do their their restoration or their transfer. Yeah. Um, 4k to a blu-ray uh they couldn't find the finished reels of film and <laughs> you know all they would have is a is a hard drive and they wanted to find the original source material of the actual film yeah and they couldn't find it where they had stored the film in here he had so much film yeah that they could not find the original shots for every single thing in order to do to do a 100 percent transfer ridiculous. so they just used what they had but then because you know, Criterion likes to get the filmmakers involved. Yeah. And so Terrence Malick and, you know, his editor and his DP and everybody, they're, they're there trying to help, uh, get the, the correct original negatives, right. uh, organized out of all this and they can't do it. But Terrence Malick being the person that he is at the same time, seeing this unending amount of film that he shot, yeah. was like, would you mind if I just edited another movie out of all this as well? And we can put that on the Criterion as well. <laughs> so there is a secondary version, a different version oh of God. this film on the Blu-ray as well. That's a new edit um that's about slightly different things um so i i highly encourage everyone to watch that as well um the person that you were just speaking about actually gave that to me as a as a gift okay. so thank you <laughs> um but yeah it's an amazing film it's uh, a huge inspiration to me um i love yeah, it yeah that's awesome i actually uh i actually started this film um and i i started it with somebody and i quickly realized that i should have been watching it alone um yeah yeah no it was uh i attempted to show this to my family and they were rolling their eyes at me and i was just getting angry yeah (laughs) (laughs) but um no i I actually ended up we watched like 30 minutes of it and you know the guy that i was watching it with just hated it so yeah he uh this is a film for film lovers right um so. so i put a bookmark in it to come back to it and i totally forgot that i did that so um i definitely got to go back and watch that but all right well i think that's going to be the end of this first half um yeah just to reiterate some things we said earlier we may or may not have a tenant episode come out before the second half of this or the second half of this might came out first so just keep your eyes open Mm -hmm. um and also in the future some weeks down the line whether a week or two uh we will be doing seven